Okay, well, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Planning Policy Working Group. Uh, this is our second meeting in July. Um, we'll start with apologies for absence and declarations of interest. And apologies from Councillors Lachlan and Oliver. Thank you. Any declarations of interest? Minutes of the previous meeting, are they an accurate record? You have a query. Um, I have a query, Chairman. You'll have, to You'll have to bear with me, Chairman, to find the right bit. Um, there is a bit that is entitled in the minutes Together Towards 2013. I believe that should read 2033. It's the head of a sub paragraph somewhere. It's PP11. Thank you. Um, if it could say Towards a Fresh Vision of the District in 2033, please. Thank you. Councillor Dean. It's only an error in terms of omission. There's a quotation from me, Chairman, at the top of page 7, where I made reference to the, um, to the documentation referring to the importance of the leadership role from members. I did also say something at that time, something to the effect that I thought it was a, a two-way thing, that it's also officers' responsibility to, um, I can't remember what words I used, but shall we say stand up to members to make sure that at least we know what their alternative view is, should members be you know, going off in one particular direction on a particular issue. So I, I wrote down here, I said that it was essential that officers were equally open and objective with their professional okay. advice and challenge the instincts of all members when necessary to ensure robust and open debate. That, that I, I, I think you know, there, there were two sides to it. Yeah, yeah. I think both sides should we be We understand the minutes. point you're making. Maggie, did you? You got that? Okay. Any other accuracies to the minutes? Okay, they will be duly signed um, at the end of the meeting. Um, matters arising from the minutes, um, PP7 to 10, including 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, and then there were the public statements as um, submitted. So there are no matters arising. Thank you very much indeed. Okay, we move on to item four, and I'm delighted to welcome Adam Dodgson from the Planning Advisory Service, um, who will uh, give a presentation about the role of district councillors and the local plan process. And just to remind members uh, that the PAS and Adam in particular are working with the Scrutiny Committee on uh, the process last time. Um, welcome, Adam. Over to yourself. Thank you very much, uh, Councillor Roth. Sorry, excuse me. Let's pull that slightly closer. Just checking the technology, of course. That one there. Aha, okay. Sorry about that. Um, good evening, everybody. Um, just a very quick introduction uh, to uh, me. Um, I'm one of the Planning Advisory Services principal consultants. Uh, 
I've been a, a planner for just over 20 years, um, both in local authorities, regional when it was there, and central government. And I've been at the Planning Advisory Service since uh, 2008, working mainly on local plans with local authorities. May I ask for just a quick show of hands? Has every member heard of the Planning Advisory Service? Great. Most hands went up. Thank you. I just want to say very quickly then that we have been an organisation funded by central government to basically uh, advise local authorities on their planning functions, whether it be local plans or uh, their development management function. Uh, and my role has certainly been to lead on the support with local, uh, local plan making. So just really quickly to uh, check on the aims of my presentation. I will go into a bit of the background about the national policy, the context that we are planning within, uh, the call and drive for sustainable development and what that actually means, um, the importance of having a local plan in place, um, a very brief moment, uh, note about uh, the Planning Advisory Service role here in Uttlesford, as Councillor Rolf just uh, mentioned there, we have been uh, doing some work with scrutiny on the local plan as was examined uh, and we will also be looking at uh, next steps and the way forward with the current local plan. And I wanted to cover a couple of key issues such as uh, the sustainability appraisal and the um, merry issue of setting the level of development in Uttlesford. And also, obviously, key to all of that is the, the councillor role in, in that. Uh, before going further, in case you haven't seen this uh, very excitingly covered document, this is the National Planning Policy Framework. Uh, to which all local authorities have to refer. Uh, government produced it in March 2012, they published it then, and what it did effectively was to get rid of over a thousand odd and more pages of government guidance and put them all into one document of around about 50 or so pages. Um, so lots and lots of stuff was stripped out of, of guidance and advice notes and uh, the planning policy statements as were and put into the National Planning Policy Framework. That is the only uh, planning policy document that, that all planners have to refer to. But underneath that you'll notice the PPG or Planning Practice Guidance is uh, an online document that is sort of a bit more flesh on the bones, a bit more of the how-to, sort of the, the, literally what it says it is. It's the guidance for local authorities uh, to follow in trying to apply the planning policy framework. So those two documents together are the sorts of things your planners will be um, too well versed in perhaps, uh, they'll be uh, very well versed in it and they will be referring to that uh, whenever they need to. So that's the context. There is obviously uh, a legal framework that sits above that too, um, but that's, in terms of, that's, that's there in terms of the policy. I wanted to touch on um, what sustainable development means because it can be a question that vexes a number of people. Uh, the way the government have defined it, I'll try and use this pointer, yeah, is that there are effectively those three areas that must be taken as a whole and considered in the round. So you've got the factors that affect the economy, factors that affect the environment, and factors that affect society, and there in the middle, ideally, if you've equally balanced them all, and it's possibly not the case that you can always equally balance them all, you have to consider them all in the round, and if you're happy that um, the development in front of you uh, will help achieve some of your economic goals, your environmental goals, and your society goals, then you will have sustainable development. But it's up to you as councillors, and it's up to the planners as officers, to um, weigh up the pros and cons effectively. Planning is a balancing act the whole time. You are there with information in front of you, some of which will point towards environmental harm, some of which will point towards um, 
damaging or you know, not picking up the economy, and some of which may, may be raised in issues around uh, social equity and societal issues. And I'm afraid it's your uh, simple task to put all those together and uh, see if you can make uh, decisions for the good of Uttlesford uh, based on those three, those three sort of legs of the stool, if you like. So that is when people talk about what sustainable development is, they do mean that balance between those three uh, key elements. So underneath the national planning policy, you will have your uh, local documents. Of course, you're working on your local plan right now. And underneath that, there will be some, uh, no doubt, there'll be some neighbourhood plans. I'm, I'm not sure of the progress in your authority, but you will have some neighbourhood plans, I'm sure, or some interest in some neighbourhood plans. And they will also form part of the development plan when they get made. So that is the national context, where your plan sits in the national context, and just a bit of a sort of a headline about um, what sustainable development means, certainly what the government believes it means, and what you ought to bear in mind when you're making those big decisions. But as this slide shows, you can still reject uh, unsustainable schemes. I understand, by the way, sorry, the presentation will be circulated afterwards, so for making sort of uh, furious scribbling about all these long quotes, don't worry about it, you'll get the slides afterwards. Um, but without a plan in place, as Uttlesford is currently uh, um, an authority that doesn't have an up-to-date plan in place, you will have to apply the national planning policy framework, uh, and you will have to rely on that to consider whether you are able to uh, accept or reject unsustainable schemes. And many councils across the country have always asked us and said, doesn't this mean there's a, there's a free-for-all? Aren't we at risk of you know, anything being accepted just because we don't have a plan in place? And the answer is no. Uh, the National Planning Policy Framework does contain a number of guidelines, a number of policies regarding what is sustainable development and what can and can't be allowed in certain circumstances. And you can see just a couple of quotes from a couple of places, and very recent too, so not something that's been um, you know, happening four or five years ago, but never since. Uh, you can see that as recently as this year, a couple of appeals were dismissed because of the reasons, I won't read them out, but of the reasons that the inspector has concluded there. And it's not, um, you know, that's an interesting point. The first one, perhaps, is that it talks about the damage to the surrounding countryside. So in that balancing um, equation, if you like, the balance in favour of the development against its impact on the surrounding countryside wasn't great enough to tip it in favour of saying yes to it. So that's a classic sort of nice illustration there about how you and then an inspector faced with an appeal will have to consider it's this balance and clearly in this instance or in that instance in Cheshire East uh, the effect on the surrounding countryside uh, was clearly too great to allow the development to happen. So I think it's fair to say you are probably going to receive some applications ahead of the local plan being adopted. Um, and if you are unsure about the potential for rejecting them, uh, perhaps this slide can give you at least some comfort that it's not a planning free-for-all. Uh, and with the National Planning Policy Framework in place, you do have something there to help you have those right discussions and to come to the right decision. But local plans are important. Um, you know, why have a plan if you can rely solely on the national planning policy framework? Well, the local plan, of course, doesn't just um, talk about housing. It sets the vision uh, and framework for the future area as a whole. You're working on your, uh, your strategy right now. The process is beginning again. Um, and so uh, you know, what you have here is some of the headline reasons why, at least from um, you know, what we've learned from other authorities, uh, are seen as key reasons why local plans are particularly important. Um, I just want to say at this stage, and this is not, you know, planning is, is a hard sell. 
it's, it, it's the long game, you know, asking people to think about where they might want to be in 15 years' time or think about what the place might look like in 15 years' time is a very difficult conversation to have, uh, particularly when a plan can take quite a while, maybe two, three or more years to, to get to examination. When the plan appears, there will be some allocated sites, for example, and there may be some people who um, had sort of, you know, parked the conversation you had three years ago about, ago about those sites. Uh, and when the application comes in, they might go straight to your door and say, what's all this? Why are there bulldozers coming at the end of my road? Well, it was all set out as part of the local plan and as part of the strategy, but it's a very long conversation. And so it's quite difficult, I think, for uh, members and members of the public alike to sort of make sure you keep on the ball and this is where that conversation you have with your officers comes in, um, because they should be keeping you up to date uh, very clearly with the progress on your plan. So it isn't a simple case of sort of making lots of very quick decisions now, and that's the way it's set in stone. But when you do have that plan in place, that is the document you can refer to with confidence uh, that you can keep referring to when people are asking you why certain things are or aren't happening, perhaps. Um, and the Lions Review of 2014 actually sort of crunched some numbers, if you like, as to what was happening around the country uh, and why having a plan in place really does matter, why delivering the housing that people say we need uh, really matters. And this is quite a, a stark slide, really, um, a national average slide, not, not based on, on any particular district. But it was clear in all of the, the manifest, manifestos pre-election, and it's been very clear from lots of announcements uh, recently, that um, you know, housing is very important and meeting housing need is perhaps one of the number one priorities for, for this government. And these are just some of the reasons why, notwithstanding the fact that it's about putting roofs over people's heads, uh, it's also crucial to economic growth and to uh, lots of benefits for the economy as well. You've already had a local plan examination and you're aware of the fact that inspectors can, if uh, so minded and if so presented with, with a certain uh, level of evidence, will have to suggest that the plan either gets withdrawn or, or could be found unsound. And this is just sort of a, a bit of a, I don't know if it helps or not, but it's a, a bit of a reality check to say, in case anybody was wondering if Uttlesford was being picked on, the answer is most definitely not. Uh, there are a number of authorities across the country who have been um, faced with similar problems and similar uh, requests from the inspector to withdraw their plans. And these are perhaps the three uh, key reasons why uh, plans have been found unsound or being asked to withdraw. Uh, the middle one, strategic planning and the duty to cooperate, I'll come back to very shortly what we think strategic planning really means and what it might mean for Uttlesford in particular. But those are just um, three of about, I don't know, a dozen or 15 plans over the last 12 months that were either found unsound or uh, instructed to withdraw their plans by the inspectors, and three of the, perhaps the strongest reasons why um, some authorities have been, have been um, failing to get those plans in place. So all that I think we really mean by strategic is larger than local. You'll be aware, uh, I assume you'll be aware, um, that there was a tier of, of regional government that existed and there was a regional spatial strategy, uh, much loved in some parts of the country, much detested in others. Um, but the point is that it, it did exist and what it did do was draw together some of those key strategic issues that affected areas far larger than a single local authority. Uh, when the um, coalition government came into power and now the Conservatives since then have, have sort of restated their commitment not to reopen 
what was called regional planning and have left it to local authorities to discuss between themselves those larger than local issues, the things that affect both your district and districts over the other side of, of, of your neighbouring boundaries. I mean, a fairly obvious one for you would be Stansted, another would be uh, the M11 and the impact on uh, M11 junctions of development in and around the M11, either in Harlow, uh, East Hearts or Ruttlesford or even elsewhere. So those sorts of larger than local issues, the government has said it's up to you how you go about uh, sorting these out and has provided a duty for local authorities to comply with, which is the duty to cooperate, which you may have heard uh, mention of plenty of times, I'm sure, and you, I'm sure you will continue to do so. All it really means is, have you assessed what your cross-boundary issues are, and have you had the right conversations to determine how you are going to um, meet those cross-boundary issues. Uh, as lots of authorities have been pointing out, it's not a duty to agree, so you may uh, come up against a sort of an intractable problem that you're not convinced that you can simply sign off a document that says, yes, we are happy to allow you know, 5,000 houses halfway between our boundary and, and the neighbouring boundary, for example, um, but at least you've got to show that you've had those conversations and you've got the sorts of um, bodies or uh, governance in place that shows uh, an inspector and others that you've actually taken this seriously and you're doing all you can to get to the bottom of some of these issues rather than just uh, sweeping them under the carpet because they're a bit difficult. Uh, the last point just uh, sort of highlights that in a place uh, like Huttlesford or a lot of other places where there are perhaps a, it's a large area and there are lots of dispersed settlements, you may find that even some small sites when taken together could be considered to be a sort of a strategic issue, uh, particularly if they're needed for the five-year housing land supply. I will come back to the issue of what the five-year housing land supply uh, means shortly, but I wanted to raise that there, that it doesn't necessarily, strategic isn't really an issue about how big something is. It's a question of whether it's a, considerably, uh, a considerable issue for the area, not necessarily just a large site. So I wanted to sort of clarify that with that last point. Just to reiterate uh, what Councillor Rolfe said, um, we have been doing some work with Uttlesford already, part of the scrutiny review. Uh, this is from the scrutiny report of 10th of February, which just sets out precisely what it is that uh, the Planning Advisory Service is doing and has been doing in the background. Some of this work is, is already underway. Um, we've done some reviews of some of the previous technical studies already, and there's been at least one presentation to um, the scrutiny panel. So, um, that's just really just to uh, part of another reason why I'm here this evening is to, is to sort of remind everybody that uh, we have this wider role in this particular instance to look into the, um, the plan as well submitted as well as how we move forward from there and we are, we are doing that with a view to reporting back in September whenever the scrutiny date is in September. <laughs> Um, it may feel sometimes that some of the discussions you have with planners are quite surreal um, and it's quite nice that a surrealist made this quote because it actually, uh, it actually goes a long way to helping people understand what happens when you're creating a local plan. There is no such thing as a perfect local plan. You will always, always get challenged by somebody, whether it's an aggrieved landowner who didn't get their site allocated or whether it's uh, aggrieved members of the public who were convinced that uh, there shouldn't be any further development in a certain area. Um, you will not have a plan that doesn't get challenged. Um, and so... Sort of a, some, some authorities tend to be sort of hamstrung by this fear that, they, that they, they daren't publish something because they're worried about the challenges they get back. I think this is just a sort of a, a little reminder that um, there's no such thing as a perfect plan. I think uh, one of the previous inspectors who's just retired now used to like to say um, it's better to be roughly right than precisely wrong.
So part of the remit this evening was to talk about sort of the, not just the local plan but the, the role that councillors play in it and clearly this is an exceptionally or can be an exceptionally thorny issue as I've already mentioned it's quite it's the long game uh, and it can be quite a hard sell but you do have um, some friends whether they be planning officers or whether it be uh, the evidence base you may not may not necessarily think of the evidence as, as your friend but the point of it is that most of what goes into the local plan has to be objectively assessed it's not just the housing need with its actual phrase objectively assessed need it's the fact that the whole of the plan is is driven by the evidence and if it isn't supported by evidence that's actually one of the tests of soundness that the plan uh, can be justified and so how it's justified is by referring back to the evidence that has being gathered. So when you have key pieces of evidence that get, uh, get published, it's, um, it's going to be helpful, I'm sure, to have briefings from your officers about those, but also it's going to be worthwhile um, getting to know those pieces of evidence, because when you're having uh, conversations with communities and they come back to you with concerns and they say, how can you possibly be suggesting uh, you know, any number of housing in the edge of this village or on the edge of this town or anywhere else? Um, you would have to go back to them with the evidence and you would have to say this is a comprehensive review of the whole of Uttlesford it's not just uh, this ward and consequently um, that sort of that bottom point when you become district councillors you are just that you will of course have your your ward uh, hats on if I can call them those but you do have this strategic role too you're making decisions um, on the on the whole of the Uttlesford area not just of a, a single particular area um, and as I mentioned earlier, you do have uh, the national policy, you do have this context to refer to as well. It's not something that somebody has, has made up or had a bad dream about. This is actually uh, real, but it's also, um, you know, it, it's, it's a plan which is backed by evidence and it's a plan which is supported by national policy. So in effect, those two things are sort of your safety net um, when faced with conversations with people who, who may um, not be convinced about why the, why the authority is proposing certain things over other things. And as I mentioned, of course, there will be uh, challenges from all sides. Uh, these are a couple of, um, you know, sort of genuine slides from various places who uh, obviously had some um, strong feeling from the community and they went out there and they protested outside of the council offices and said, you know, this particular development simply can't happen or you mustn't release the green belt. It's not always about the green belt, but of course you do have a, a small amount in Uttlesford and that will be an issue for you as well. But it's quite clear from national policy that local authorities must meet the requirement that they that they um, they have the evidence that suggests that the number is there. They must meet that requirement. Um, simply saying you have a shortage of sites, or simply saying that perhaps some of the rates of delivery that you've been experiencing to date might make meeting this number quite difficult, on its own, those are not convincing enough reasons for an inspector to say okay, then you can have a plan with a smaller number in it. Um, if the provision is to be less than the requirement, and it can be, then the level of justification needed will be very high. This is back to the evidence again. But if you are saying, we understand through, um, and I know uh, Martin's going to go through some of the numbers some of, the, some of the numbers in his presentation but if for example you are saying and I'll keep a, a low number in mind just to be totally non-controversial your plan figure was uh, your objective assessed need was up at uh, 250 uh, per annum for example um, but you were trying to say that the plan only had space the authority only had space for 100 per annum that in itself would not be a reason on its own to say so we'll produce a plan with 100 per annum in it as its figure you have to have um, a convincing debate and you have to look at all the evidence in the round before you decide on what the number is and I'm going to come back to that issue shortly as well. Um, 
some of the community objecting to providing housing, again, that's not sufficient reason to underprovide in and of itself. Uh, there's a very good uh, report from the recently adopted Newcastle and Gateshead local plan up in the northeast where the inspector actually draws out just how controversial and just the sort of level of, of debate that was had about certain issues, but refers in the end to the fact that the evidence pointed to the strategy that ended up being in the plan being the most sustainable in its balancing of the three environmental, economic and social um, legs of the stool. And therefore, yes, he was fully aware that some of this stuff was controversial and there were many, many objections to it, but actually it still proved to be on balance the right plan for the area. And this is the tricky bit for you as councillors. You have to have that balance in mind and you have to make sure that you're aware that the decisions you're making are based on that evidence. Um, if you don't like the evidence in front of you, you can certainly question it and you can certainly, it's, it's wise to question it. But at the end of the day, when it comes back, that's the thing that you're making, ideally, that's the thing you're making the decision based on. Um, Greenbelt isn't sacrosanct, much as most people would like to think it is, um, but it doesn't mean that just because it isn't sacrosanct it has to be built on. Of course it doesn't. So again, one of the parts of the plan may be, may be and I'm not saying it should be or is going to be, but in Uttlesford it may be that you decide to review your Greenbelt to see if it still stands up to the purposes that it, it was set out to stand up to. Uh, if you decide that it does still meet its five uh, significant purposes, then you can move on and say, yes, we've looked at it, and yes, it still stands as it is, so no, we're not changing the Greenbelt boundary. But lots of authorities are finding uh, that if they don't at least look at it, they're only getting challenged on it and the inspectors are starting to at least have a, a, a really close look at people's, uh, people's green belts. Um, another thing which I'm coming to very shortly is the sustainability appraisal. Have we all heard of the sustainability appraisal? This is one of your key, key documents. Um, it gets produced at key stages of the local plan, so it's not a once-only published thing. It's an iterative process, but again, it's very much your friend. It helps you assess each of the sites as they come forward and shows you whether they are meeting uh, the sustainability objectives that you as a council will have agreed to. And consequently, you need to really get, uh, get to grips with the sustainability appraisal, let your officers uh, get to grips with it for you and explain it to you, because um, that's a very key piece of evidence. It helps explain in each particular scenario why um, scenario A might be more preferable to scenario B. Uh, for example, it will, it will do that scoring, if you like, that sort of balancing that I've been talking about, and it will come out and say, actually, it's quite clear that a strategy to, to do a certain thing is far more preferable to a strategy to do something completely different. But again, it's the sustainability appraisal that will help you make that uh, answer that question. It's not just a question of you sitting there and saying, gosh, this is really difficult. The SA will really help you understand how uh, certain sites perform, if you like, against others. And of course, there are the neighbours to consider as well, the, uh, the local authority neighbours as well. I think I've covered the sustainable development issue right at the beginning, but it's just to remind you uh, that it is at the heart of the plan and it will be at the heart of, of, of what goes into the plan. It's looking at the issues in the round, it's having that balance, and it's knowing that whilst not everybody will agree, you've got to work together as best you can, both with your communities and with um, your neighbouring authorities, and to help people understand exactly why certain decisions were taken. I think clarity and transparency are absolutely key as well and I'm coming on to some quotes from the Minister shortly uh, where that gets drawn out and you can't have that clarity and transparency unless you've uh, demonstrated that you've got the right kind of evidence and you've referred to it all the way through uh, in your decision making. I did want to touch on objective assessed need. Um, it's obviously quite a large, as I mentioned earlier, it's quite a large uh, reason nationally why plans are, uh, have been struggling perhaps. Um, it's 
something that comes up time and again. I've, I was recently on a secondment in a different local authority in Hampshire before Christmas, and the conversations there with, with the members were very tricky because when they were showing what the evidence was talking to them about in terms of numbers, they were, um, they were uh, nervous, I think is the best way of putting it, uh, as to whether they felt that they could produce a plan that had um, a number in it that was even somewhere near the high end of the middle of the range, let alone somewhere down the bottom. Um, and there was a big job for, for the, uh, the officers to do in explaining how that number uh, came about. So it is a two-step process. Um, you start with the evidence to understand the level of need, which is your objective assessed need, and then, as I mentioned earlier, you consider whether you've got any potential constraints and apply those, and that's what becomes the plan target. So the objective assessed need doesn't have to be the plan target, but if it isn't, you've got to have very uh, significant and strong evidence as to why those constraints mean that the target comes down from what the need is. What some local authorities have been doing has been basically saying, we see what the need is, but we'll actually call the need, we'll, we'll, we'll apply the constraints first, and we'll say because we have green belt or because we have significant areas of flood risk, we clearly will never meet our objective assessed need, so what's the point in sort of fessing up to what it is? Let's just call it the constrained number and present that to the inspector and say our plan target happens to equal our need because it's based on our constraints. And the inspector is saying, no, if you have a need which is higher than that which you can deliver in your area, you've got to trigger those conversations with, um, with your neighbouring authorities. And that's really what that second point is. I think government would like to see that when you come up with a number that is your objective assessed need, that is also what the number that goes into your plan as your plan target. Um, but if it isn't, you've got, to, you've got to show exactly why it isn't. And if you're not meeting your overall need, you've got to have those conversations with neighbouring authorities. It sounds like I'm really labouring the point, and I'm sorry if I am, but it, it's, it's a very, very crucial part of, of plan making. And it's a very key reason why some plans have been... Um, I guess falling over. So it, it's, it's something you absolutely have to get your heads around. So when you have understood what the need figure is, you do obviously have to do this comprehensive assessment um, of the area. And this is again, this is completely led by the evidence. Um, there are a few phrases in there. I'm going to come back to a couple of them, such as deliverable. Um, uh, you know, there's actually a definition in the National Planning Policy Framework of what, what the government means or wants you to understand as meaning by deliverable. Um, clearly, housing on its own is not the sort of thing which we would want to see just dumped in, in areas. There has to be an understanding of the infrastructure requirements. And by infrastructure, I don't just mean roads and rail. I mean, obviously, the green infrastructure, the social infrastructure, uh, schools, health facilities, and so on. It's not just a question of uh, plonking housing estates on the edges of villages and hoping that um, people have the goodwill in their hearts to open up surgeries and things like that. You've got to have the, the proper linking of all that, uh, all that kit together, all that infrastructure requirement together, and to be realistic about the funding opportunities for it as well. I'm sure some developers will claim that they can afford to give you everything you ask for, uh, but when it comes down to it, uh, in specific negotiations, there start to be some sort of sticky, sticky conversations, and bit by bit, some of those key pieces of infrastructure may fall out of their, their magic box, if you like. Um, so it's critical to understand what those requirements are and to understand where the funding may come from for those, and it is critical to engage with developers. This is not a question of saying you're going to have those uh, uncomfortable discussions behind closed doors. This is a question of saying developers ought to 
uh, have lots of evidence that you don't have that they can share with you. Uh, they ought to be able to tell you helpful things about um, the speed at which they can deliver certain sites, for example, um, uh, and about sort of the levels of, of other parts of infrastructure that they can help you achieve. And they ought to understand if there are sites which require uh, mitigation, for example, they ought to help you understand the cost of that mitigation uh, and to help you understand uh, just how that might affect whether a site can be sort of allocated in the local plan or put back into a later plan period because it simply isn't available at the moment. So those discussions with developers will have to come forward. Um, Martin's going to come uh, and talk about uh, sort of the, um, the areas of search uh, and how you get to the situation where you understand the sort of broad areas of where you might be looking to develop um, because it is, a, it is led by the strategy, it's not led by developers, but you do have to engage them uh, in conversations as the plan gets developed. Not least which because um, although this original phrase was used for uh, something slightly different in the Hesseltine Review, the uh, pursuit of growth, um, I think it was Brighton and Hove Council um, who were the first to receive an inspector who said, uh, I understand quite clearly that you have the sea on one side and you have the South Downs National Park on the other, um, and therefore you're saying you're constrained and there's very little you can do about meeting the needs that, that, that uh, your studies have just come up and told you you have to meet. But the inspector in Brighton's case wasn't convinced that they had left no stone unturned when assessing whether they could meet uh, all, of that, uh, all of that need within their area. So it's a question of being confident that you can actually say, yes, we've reviewed... Um, you know, our distribution across the, the whole of Uttlesford. We've looked at where sites could come forward. Um, we've knocked out the ones that clearly can't be delivered. And we're left with, uh, um, you know, a, a broad selection based on a, a, a proper strategy and evidence. And we believe, therefore, that once you've done all of that work, you've got the number that says this is how much we think we can deliver in Uttlesford in the plan period. Um, but if you can't demonstrate you've left no stone unturned, the inspector will simply go back and ask you to look again at some of those assumptions you might have made to say, you know, can that density be a bit higher, for example, in certain areas, or you know, could some of that land actually come forward uh, quicker than, than you think it can? I think the key phrase at the top is the every effort should be made, uh, and that's what really that, that gets to the, to the nub of. I mentioned sustainability appraisal. This is not an in-depth uh, look at what the sustainability appraisal does. It really is just saying that, as I sort of mentioned before, it's an iterative process. You have sort of four key stages, if you like, uh, of local plan preparation that you're going to be going through. Under each of those stages, the sustainability appraisal is updated to help you understand the impact of the decisions you're required to make. So when you get to the stage where you're um, forming your initial options, you will have already done and you will be doing sustainability appraisal of those options. So again, it's not a question of saying, how do we jump from here to here? And do we all have to sort of sit in a, in a war cabinet and sort of thrash it out? You might do, but it will be with uh, the sustainability appraisal in front of you, which helps you uh, understand that balance again of those three elements uh, to determine which of the sites are the most sustainable and therefore ought to be taken forward into the draft local plan. So um, that's all I really want to say about sustainability appraisal, other than to remind you that it's one of the most key documents that you will, you will have, and you will, expect, you will have to expect to see those iterations of it as it comes forward. It's not a sort of once-only publish uh, and leave it alone. It, it, it's something that will keep being updated, and it's proper for it to be uh, kept updated. I said I wanted to touch briefly, uh, please now I'm nearly done, um, I wanted to touch briefly on some of the more recent ministerial announcements. Um, this uh, was from Brandon Lewis, who's the Planning and Housing Minister. 
I won't go and read it out loud, but uh, I think the key thing for us, of course, is that they say they are committed to a planning system and they're committed to local plans in particular. And because of that commitment, they've actually now come out and said, and I've put that emphasis in just to, just to highlight it, um, when no local plan has been produced by early 2017, they, will, they being the government, um, will intervene to arrange for the plan to be written. Um, our understanding is that um, prior to this announcement, they made a decision to um, intervene in the Malden local plan, which obviously isn't very far away from you. Um, what that intervention precisely means uh, isn't clear by that statement, uh, but I think it's possibly scary enough to hope uh, to, to get most uh, authorities thinking about getting their plans produced by early 2017. Um, that last quote is quite helpful, perhaps uh, sufficiently clear and concise to be accessible to everyone with a local interest. Um, I think it's fair to say, and this is no criticism of local authorities at all, but I think it's fair to say that many local authorities uh, sort of go um, belt and braces when it comes to producing a local plan, and you find something which is um, perhaps better used um, to hold open a, a heavy door than it is to read through. Um, but the, the, the clear drive from government is to make it uh, clear and concise and based on the evidence and have that very clear audit trail. So um, there's a challenge for you to not only get a plan in place quite quickly, but to do so without um, overburdening people when they're having to carry it around. Another key letter uh, that came out wasn't a, wasn't a, a ministerial statement. It was a letter from uh, Greg Clark, who's the Secretary of State. Incidentally, Greg Clark was the person who was responsible for publishing the National Planning Policy Framework in 2012. So after a couple of um, reshuffles in Cabinet, he's back home, perhaps you could argue. Um, and he wrote to PINS, which is the Planning Inspectorate. Sorry for the acronyms. Planners love those. Um, and that's what he said. Um, so he is calling for inspectors to be as pragmatic as possible and to work with councils uh, towards achieving a sound local plan. Um, I think just the key thing to say there is we at the Planning Advisory Service do believe that the inspectorate have been trying to be as pragmatic as possible uh, and you may have seen in the press recently uh, perhaps a number of authorities have been um, uh, given a, uh, an inspector's letter which says uh, I'm going to find this plan sound subject to an early review. And so what that means is the plan is actually sound as written, but there is perhaps a key, uh, a key element of the plan which will need a review in a couple of years' time, but why wait for those two years to pass before you produce any kind of plan? So it's that sort of pragmatic approach. It can't apply in every circumstance, but it has been applying in certain circumstances, and I think ministers are keen for the planning inspector to work as closely with local authorities as possible to try to um, explain perhaps ahead of time, ahead of the examination, where there may be uh, issues that they might want to address in the short term so they don't get caught out uh, when it comes to the examination. There is a key driver, I'm sure you've heard of it, about the five-year land supply. And it's not just whether you have a local plan in place, an up-to-date local plan, but whether you can demonstrate that you have this thing called a five-year land supply. But very simply, it's whether you can demonstrate that whatever your plan target is, annualised, multiplied by five, you have enough sites uh, allocated, you have enough sites with permission, you have enough sites um, identified that will come forward during those first five years. The government defined this as they should be deliverable. Um, 
and what that means in the national planning policy framework it's only in a footnote so it's very much in the small print uh, but it says they should be available now a suitable location for development now and achievable with a realistic prospect of development within five years so that's why you may get challenged by certain developers who say well i see your five-year land supply but you, you you've included a site there that's been lying fallow for six years why do you think it's going to come forward now in the next five years and it's up to the council for all of the sites that are in your five-year land supply to have a fairly clear understanding um, that you've got that commitment from the developer or the landowner and you understand the rate at which it's going to uh, be be built out so that you're actually putting a realistic number against that site and it's all based on whether it meets that sort of um, definition if you like of deliverable the remainder of the plan should make sure the sites are developable and again in the same footnote it says developable means a suitable location for housing reasonable prospect that it's available and could be viably developed at the point envisaged so the word that creeps in there is viable and viability and the assessment of whether sites are viable or not is a key part of plan making and I'm no doubt that you will see throughout the next um, uh, months and, and even coming years a number of different sort of reports that talk about viability and whether sites have viability or not, whether the plan as a whole taken as a whole is either stymieing the viability of, of Uttlesford as a developable area or not and promoting Uttlesford as a place that can be developed. Um, but it's all about whether your sites can be either deliverable for the first five years or developable for the remainder of the plan period and that reasonable prospect that they can be delivered including the supporting infrastructure and I just threw in at the bottom there obviously uh, the local plan inspector did make specific comments on the M11 uh, Junction 8 and wasn't just referring to Uttlesford sites but also other sites when taken together would have that cumulative impact um, so it's those sorts of considerations that come into play when you're considering whether something could be realistically developed during the plan period uh, or not but you will hear people talking about the five-year land supply uh, very regularly and that's the sort of thing that they mean when they're talking about it And what happens if you don't? Uh, I, I shared a slide at the beginning that said, you know, just because you don't have an up-to-date plan in place doesn't mean that all sites are open to a free-for-all, but there are some very clear statements in the National Planning Policy Framework that say, uh, one of the things it says, if you don't have a five-year land supply, then your housing policies will be considered out of date. And that would be the case even if it was a year after you'd adopted a local plan. It doesn't matter how old they are, they are considered out of date if you don't have a five-year land supply, you can't demonstrate a five-year land supply. Now, the, sustainable, uh, the presumption in favour of sustainable development, as you can see, uh, kicks in, and I think we've, uh, I've probably talked, talked far too much about what sustainable development means, but that presumption kicks in, um, and you've got this um, permission should be granted unless any uh, adverse impacts would significantly and demonstrably outweigh the benefits. So it's not just... Oh, you know, we don't like the look of that. We've never really liked that site. Would the um, adverse impact significantly and demonstrably outweigh the benefits? If they wouldn't, you are, are very strongly um, uh, encouraged to uh, say yes. Um, and your ability to plan for the end of that last point, really, if you don't have that five-year land supply, you may then be subject to a number of um, applications that get, I think the technical term is, whacked in uh, by developers and what they will be doing is they will be making your office spend so much time looking at those sites that they, they are losing the ability to plan for the area as a whole and your resources might get sucked away from the very important task of updating the local plan uh, and constantly um, fighting or, or doing lots of work on uh, meeting appeal and I think uh, the phrase that most people use there is planning by appeal rather than being uh, plan led. 
my last slide, apart from questions, of course. Um, this is just a very quick, very quick uh, summary of um, the progress that we've seen to date since we've started having conversations with the officers. Um, it's very important that the, the vision for Ruttlesford is in place and is understood by everybody. Um, you're at the stage now where I think you're defining and sort of starting to really own that strategy. And as members, that's a very key point for you. You must be prepared to uh, sign up, I suppose, is one way of putting it, sign up to the vision and to own the strategy, because this is the thing that you need to be talking to the communities about. If they're coming to you and saying, um, we're very concerned about a number of things, you need to be able to reflect back that now that you're in a position of being a member of, of the council, you are able to, um, you, you have that access to the information, you have the access to the evidence that helps you explain things uh, to them and explain why the council is looking at certain areas and why the council is considering certain things. It's not just because they're being uh, willful, it's because they're following national policy and because they're looking at the evidence that they have in front of them. That clarity and transparency is absolutely essential and it must be underpinned by uh, that robust evidence. Um, the inspector in your previous examination did make mention of a number of pieces of evidence that were in fact very robust in Uttlesford uh, and to be very commended on that um, and it's just really sort of saying that must play out through the whole of your evidence base as you move towards uh, the production of the next version of your local plan. And that's all I wanted to say. Thank you. Well, thank you very much indeed, Mr. Dodgson. That's uh, much appreciated and extremely helpful. Um, colleagues, uh, Councillor Barker. Thank you. Um, I seem to have been here before, and certainly I've had many interesting presentations from the Planning Advisory Service. Um, question I would ask is you, you say that the inspectors will be instructed to be a little more sort of pragmatic. When we submitted our local plan last year, we did that with the evidence of numbers that we were given, that had been reviewed, assessed. They had increased dramatically over the period of creating the plan, and we'd got to this figure of 523, which all the evidence pointed to as being a, a reasonable assumption for our objectively assessed need. And forgetting the, the, the issue around Elsenham, the planning inspector just then said, well, market forces perhaps you could add another 10%. Well, that wasn't an objectively assessed need. That was his sort of feeling. Now, so we've had 523. We've been working now using a figure of 580 as, our, as a basis for our five-year housing supply. When the Schmar figures come out, I'm sure that's going to be yet another figure. But that is the figure on which we are going to start, and we might then have to have duty to cooperate meetings, and that's fine. But when we come out with a figure, there are still going to be a number of months before you get to an inspection in public, during which time there will be another half year, what's it, or another, and another set of figures. And how can we possibly counter this ever-moving... You read in the papers today that the Colchester area has been told they've got to provide 15,000 less than somebody previously said. Well, they're all probably breathing a sigh of relief. But how long does that figure stay in place? And it's really how pragmatic are the inspectors going to be that we have set a stone in the sand at some point in time on the objectively assessed need as assessed, as backed up by every survey, and that we've moved forward with all good intention on that. I mean, I think the thing to say is, unfortunately, 
between um, when the census was produced in 2011 and now, the Office of National Statistics has been doing what they do, which is to work out what the uh, census tells us and what that means in terms of when they do their population projections going forward. Now, it's just an unfortunate um, dint of the time that you were having your examination that you were in December 2014 you were only a couple of months away from uh, the next round of household projections uh, they came out in February 2015 and they are called the 2012 household projections but by the end of 2014 you already had the Office for National Statistics uh, population projections there are two people who work on this the ONS do the population projections and then the uh, communities and local government produce the household projections so what that means in terms of how many households will need to be how many houses will need to be built to house the increase in population so there are cases where you know some local uh, local authorities will get caught in the middle of an examination and some new key piece of evidence will come out that the inspector will at least ask you uh, how you might have considered that um, the household projections are generally something that only comes out every two years so there should be that slightly more uh, predictable uh, level of information from the Office of National Statistics at the very least uh, that they only get rolled out every couple of years and all that the local authority has to do whether they're in the process of creating a plan or whether they've got one adopted is just to have a look at that and say yeah we've had a look we understand the impact and we either do or don't believe it makes a significant difference to the evidence that we're currently using and therefore we'll either stick to it or we'll have to do a slight change um, it is unfortunately the way of the world that, that things do uh, change as time moves on now just a very quick word about the market signals point, and I'm, I, I did read the letter from the inspector and I noticed the 10% the figure, and I noticed that he mentioned that it wasn't a, an exact science, and I perhaps should have said that myself at the outset. None of this, of course, unfortunately in some ways, is an exact science, and so it can be very frustrating to have somebody... Um, with a more convincing argument if you like come up and then change the number for you um, because it isn't an exact science and you can't therefore say you know it, it is 528 or it is something uh, either side of that slightly different um, but with regard to market signals that is something that is in the planning practice guidance that local authorities do have to take into account when looking at their their housing numbers and I think with regard to market signals it's a question of saying not just what's the affordability um, what's the change in affordability ratio for Uttlesford, it's how is Uttlesford's affordability relative to other similar areas. Um, certainly in the place where I was on to comment in Hampshire, we were able to say that actually across the whole of Hampshire, the change in the affordability ratio for the authority I was at uh, was in fact slightly lower than the changes in the rest of Hampshire. And so their assessment of market signals was there are no market signals that say there's a clear affordability issue in um, in that in that district but the inspector um, you know I can't comment on, on the reasoning for his decision but he was certainly convinced by uh, the evidence that he saw that said there should have been an uh, account taken of this thing called market signals and all things being equal I think a 10% uplift would satisfy him that that, that was um, that was appropriate for for the district to consider um, it is unfortunately, and I'm sure he will think it's unfortunate too, it's his role to, to have to look at that sort of thing. And if he doesn't believe that that's been taken into account, he would have to raise that. Uh, and so he did. I'm not saying he's right or wrong, but that's why he did what he did. Um, but the certainty about the numbers that you're using, yes, you can, you can draw a line. 
But if something does come out that is, you know, the national set of figures comes out before you get to publication or before you get to examination, the very least you have to do is demonstrate that you've looked at that and you've considered what the impact may be before you then carry on, um, because you'll only get asked that question at the examination anyway. Thanks very much. Councillor Dean. Yes, thank you. One of the um, facts that was given at a housing conference sometime over 12 months ago here was that 80% um, of the public believes and recognises that there's a housing crisis, but also that 80% of the public um, believes that the crisis isn't near me, near where I live. Um, so my, my question is, is there... Um, is there a simple fact sheet, probably not the right word, but anyway, as this is about helping members to do their job, is there a, a simplistic tool which actually describes the situation and, and why we're doing this and, and puts things like OAN into language that people understand, etc., that one can then give to one's constituent or put on one's website or whatever it might be? Sadly, I don't think there's such a thing as a national template, but I think it's a very, very good idea, and I think it's certainly open to your officers to produce something, you know, a, a two-sider or something of that nature that very simply sets out just exactly uh, what the issues are, how the evidence that has to be used is used, uh, and what this may mean. And I think in some ways it might be helpful not even to go into the real numbers and just say this is the, the, the level of discussion that we have to have. This is why you'll hear people talking about certain numbers, and this is why we're talking about this quantity. I think one thing that, 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 that planning struggles with by the fact that you are writing a 15-year strategy is that you're talking about 15 times an annual number, and that invariably sounds like a very, very big number to everybody. Um, perhaps one thing that you could do is to, to set that out in terms of, well, actually, over the last 15 years, we've already built X number. You may feel, I think that the perception for a lot of people would be that they, they've probably had much more development than they really have, um, but I think that that's quite valuable is to set out. It's not just you know, the, the other option isn't zero. You know, you may have a figure of 15,000, but the, the option to build nothing instead was never there, and you're starting from a base of actually perhaps nine or 10,000 that would have been built if you carried on doing exactly the same thing as you've done over the last 15 years. So you're talking about a difference. I mean, I know that, that's semantics, but I think it helps to explain the context is, is key, and that sort of story that says why you're going from where you are to where you need to be or where you have to be in 15 years' time is about saying this is where the key evidence comes from, this is what we have to do with it, and this is where we end up. Um, and I see no reason why that can't be done on one or two sides of paper. Uh, it's a shame there isn't a, a national template, but I think it's open to you to do that. And also, the only thing I would say, um, duty-bound as I am to, to plug PAS every now and again, is to say that we do have a number of uh, member presentations which can be used to uh, any group of members, not just any, you know, any group of members you would choose, that hopefully uh, sets this sort of thing out in, in a bit more um, uh, sort of um, user-friendly language rather than technical documents. Yeah, I think we Lodge. could have a go at producing something. Councillor Lodge. Um, thank you, Chairman, and thank you for the presentation, which was uh, very interesting, very thought-provoking. Um, a couple of times you mentioned about the lack of science in, in certain aspects of this, and one thing that struck me that was really unscientific was the straight-line nature of the five-year land supply. Um, it is pretty crude, as we would all guess. Now then, I just wondered if there was any scope for that not being the case, particularly here you talked about the difficulty with Junction 8 on the M11, which may constrain us in the early years. 
also from, from what we've done so far, it looks very likely that we'll be looking for a new settlement. That in itself is, is, is naturally likely to be back-end loaded. Hence, if we can produce the evidence base, would it be possible to in, uh, convince the inspector that the delivery could be back-end loaded and hence the five-year land supply might be correspondingly lower? This is certainly something that many local authorities are, are considering now. If you've got a perfectly uh, legitimate, if you want to call it that, strategy, which has, for example, relied on or will rely on three very large sites, they will, of course, take some time to come forward. Why would you have to, in the meantime, plug that gap with this straight line, as you call it, and just say, well, it has to be 800 a year, therefore that's what it is? Um, I would like to think this is something that will come out um, of and will be practice that falls out of the, the, the exams that are happening now, the examinations that are happening now, because I can think of a couple of examples um, across the country where they're certainly going to be asking the question, because they are relying on, in one, in one case they're relying on three large urban extensions, and if they were to have to um, fill the gap up front with far more unsustainable sites elsewhere, then why is that? That can't be proper planning. And no, it cannot be proper planning. So I would like to think, but I can't say right this very minute that it, I can quote you a, a place where this has happened. I would like to think this is something um, which could be open to, uh, you know, to the conversation that you have with the inspector. The only caveat I would have uh, with that was to quote a, a former colleague of mine when I, we both worked at government office for the east of England, um, don't throw anything at me, but uh, he used to say, you know, um, lots of local authorities like to promise jam tomorrow, and it was funny how if you asked them to do their trajectories, every single one mysteriously had this huge bump about five years from now, and the feeling was, the fear is that the, the temptation is there just to punt the difficult stuff into the long grass and say, you know, it's probably going to come in five years' time, but we, we haven't got the evidence behind it. So if you've got that strong evidence that says, you know, for example, one large um, uh, new settlement or one large urban extension is clearly the best strategy for this area, but acknowledging that, it will take five, six, seven years to even get off the ground. We all know how long Northstow, for example, in, in Cambridgeshire has taken to get off the ground, and that was a site with lots of money behind it. Then, um, you know, it ought to be reasonable. One, one has to think that it ought to be reasonable to suggest that as the strategy. But there would have to be that quite close examination as to why this was the most appropriate uh, selection of sites, and therefore why, in the short term, you were, at least on paper, not delivering the sorts of uplift that uh, the government wanted to see. But it should be open. That's my personal view. It should be open, I believe, to at least look at the possibility of that. Right. Well, thank you very much indeed, uh, Mr. Dodgson. You're very welcome to stay. Or, uh, if, yeah, that's, that's, that, that's great. Okay, we'll move on to item five, preparing a justified local plan. We've got three outside speakers um, who wish to make a contribution, so we'll take those before we get... Okay. It's been suggested that we actually have the presentation from Martin first, um, so we'll do that, then we'll take the outside speakers. So I ask uh, Mr. Payne to speak. Thank you. Thank you, Chairman. Um, as set out in the covering report, this report follows on from the option stage methodology report discussed at the previous working group meeting on the 13th of July. At that meeting, members considered the proposed approach to areas of search and the combinations of options as scenarios. Uh, 
As explained in the report, one of the main failings of the 2014 submission local plan was the absence of a clear audit trail of decisions taken and proper justification of why some options were rejected. The title of the report refers to the requirements of paragraph 182 of the National Planning Policy Framework, or MPPF, which sets out the tests of soundness of local plans, including the requirement for clear justification. As we've heard from the Planning Advisory Service tonight, the MPPF states that, quotes, every effort should be made objectively to identify and then meet the housing, business and other development needs of an area and respond positively to wider opportunities for growth, unquote. The approach set out here ensures that the Council can demonstrate that, is, that it is not dropping out any options without consideration. Failure to consider all the options would raise doubts about whether the authority was genuinely making every effort to meet objectively assessed needs. In order to ensure that a fair and transparent process is put at the heart of the plan-making process, the Council should take great care not to jump to conclusions about where development should go. The merits of all the options should be carefully considered. When starting to plan, it's standard practice to begin with some reasonable assumptions in order to ensure that options are not arbitrarily discounted without due consideration. The five high-level criteria discussed at the last meeting, when applied to the geography of the district, have generated the initial areas of search for assessment, which have been mapped in appendices A to D of the report. This first slide shows Appendix A, which shows all the areas of search on a single map. On this map, new settlement areas of search are shown in blue, town extensions in mauve, the seven larger key villages in orange, and the villages with some services and facilities, known as Type A villages, shown in green. As will be clear from this map, areas with good connections to the strategic transport network, in particular the A120, and M11 junctions 8 and 9 should be considered further. In addition, the seven key villages and the Taipei villages, all of which provide services and facilities to some degree, will all need to be considered further. As shown on Appendix A to the report, although not shown on this slide, uh, is the amount of land which would be required for 15,000 homes. It will, be it will be clear from this, therefore, that only a small proportion of the area shown as areas of search here will be needed for development. As discussed at the previous working group meetings, these initial areas of search are not limited by considerations of whether landowners have submitted proposals on their land for consideration. Indeed, it's entirely possible that the areas of search set out here may encourage more landowners to submit proposals to the Council over the coming months. However, it's for the Council to decide which areas should eventually be taken forward into the draft plan, taking account of all the planning considerations in the context of an overall development strategy and vision. Could I just ask, um, yep. one of the constraints that we haven't identified at this point in time is green belts. I therefore don't understand why with the prospect of Junction 7A on the horizon that we're not looking at that part of the district. If Junction 7A is due to be in place by 2020, which is well within our plan period and is an access onto the M11, why are we not considering any possibility in that location? Yeah. 
Okay, we'll take uh, just yes, that question okay, and then, yeah, then sure. we're going to the outside yeah. speakers. But if you want so, to finish off, Mr Payne, thank you. Yes, so um, the proposal which was contained in the work plan that was addressed at the last meeting does indeed suggest that we should undertake a Greenbelt review. In other words, precisely as was outlined earlier, we should leave no stone unturned and, and that is the expectation. So the, the areas of search here have been mapped without reference to Greenbelt. We are precisely leaving no stone unturned. Okay. So, um, so this slide presents appendices B and C to the report showing Saffron Walden and Great Dunmo. Based on the initial criteria discussed at the last working group, it's only been possible to discount the area of Audley End Registered Historic Park from further assessment, and the remainder of the areas around both towns will need to be considered further through the local plan process. This slide shows Appendix D to the report relating to the edge of Bishop Stortford. Uh, as it happens, most of this area is Greenbelt. Uh, applying the criteria from the last meeting, the area of Junction 8 should be assessed for its potential for new settlements. The new settlement area research to the southeast of Junction 8 is constrained by Hatfield Forest SSSI to the east, <coughs> uh, and in addition to extensions, uh, possible extensions for, to Bishop Stortford uh, lie within Uttlesford district. They, they uh, are also indicated as uh, requiring some consideration according to the cri criteria we've already set out. As discussed at the last meeting, it's important that the Council should equally appraise different options. In order to comply with this requirement, the areas of search have been combined into eight scenarios. These are set out in Section 4 of the report. The first set of scenarios is based on the Planning Inspector's suggestion of 580 dwellings per year, which equates to 8,750 dwellings over 15 years. As the local plan inspector noted, the district already has a healthy stock of banked permissions likely to be built during the plan period, and these can be deducted from the total requirements as shown on this slide. That's the 5,000 in the top line, the extant permissions. In addition, the inspector endorsed the council's proposed allowance for unplanned development, known as windfall, of 50 dwellings per year, and that's the 750 uh, figure there over the 15-year period. It's also important to consider the implications of a higher level of development in case the housing target changes or in case the council needs to consider the implications of a request from other districts for Uttlesford to accommodate some of their unmet housing needs. To enable the assessment of such a situation, the next set of scenarios uh, at a higher level of 750 dwellings per year or 11,750 over 15 years is presented here. To reiterate, these scenarios will provide an initial framework within which these implications could be considered. At this stage, it's unknown whether a higher level of development will be needed. Finally, this slide illustrates a scenario of no more growth beyond the windfall allowance and the extant planning permissions. This is considered unrealistic because it would not meet MPPF tests of soundness, but also because development will happen with or without the local plan. However, this scenario is, is included for consideration uh, of the implications for sustainable development. 
So as set out in section four, the scenarios and the areas of search should be understood as a framework and a starting point for consideration. The level of development required will only be confirmed when a technical study known as the Strategic Housing Market Assessment, or SHMAR, has been received, and also once all the districts in the housing market area have properly considered whether they are able to meet their own needs as set out in the SHMAR. It will be necessary for such matters to be addressed before the Council sets out a draft plan next year. Whilst it's hoped that the Schmar technical study will be available for the next meeting in September, discussions with other authorities are likely to take some time. In the meantime, the three scenarios set out here, three groups of scenarios set out here, ensure that the, the Council is beginning to establish a process to comply with the legal in, uh, requirements to, to ensure that reasonable options are considered. It's proposed that all the areas of search and the scenarios set out here should be the subject of a high-level assessment using the criteria set out in the Sustainability Appraisal Scoping Report, which follows this report at Agenda Item 5. It's proposed that the areas of search, scenarios and the assessment set out in the Sustainability Appraisal should together form the basis of a public consultation in the autumn, following the next meeting of the Working Group in September. Members therefore have an opportunity to reflect on the work presented here and any subject suggestions submitted to the planning policy team during August can be considered at the next meeting. To reiterate, it's necessary to make some high-level assumptions in order to start the plan-making process. These assumptions will then be tested and refined and indeed superseded as work progresses and more information is accumulated. Thank you, Chairman. That concludes my introduction to this report. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, I call upon Jackie Cheatham, if you'd like to come to the mic. Thank you. Just to remind you, you have three minutes. Thank you, Chairman. It's strange once again to be at this side so quickly. Um, thank you for allowing me to speak, and I wish to make the following comments on the planning process of justifying a local plan. You state that UDC should not jump to conclusions about where development should go. You have drawn blobs on maps to show vague areas where housing can go. The only number you mention is 15,000 houses. Um, by doing this, you will start hairs running. So how do you propose to deal with the speculative applications that are going to come in from developers? Do you have a five-year housing supply to enable UDC to turn these down? You already have appeals going on at the moment on sites that were not allocated in the last plan. On your table, you only refer to SSIs and green belt as restrictions, but there are other policies that will need to be taken into account when assessing a site. And can I have assurance that things like the Countryside Protection Zone, which has been upheld by inspectors quite often at appeals, and as I was one of the councillors that got that very firmly put onto the district plan, I sincerely hope we're going to continue with that, and also noise contours when where they are relevant. Um, you will be looking at the local policies when you assess the sites for housing. Are you going to look again at the key villages designated in the last plan? Many of these villages have permissions for housing on the back of the plan that's just been turned down, but the infrastructure has not, not kept up with the development. In my view, they need to be looked at again, not only as on housing numbers, 
um, that are there, but as a whole, including infrastructure, services, etc. And I hope that uh, that was sort of highlighted with regard to the talk, which I found excellent. Consulting with the parish councils and the public is very important, but having one meeting of the parish councils in Saffron Walden in September is not the best way forward, in my view, as having smaller groups, one in the south and one in the north, would enable better discussion and views to be got across. UDC doesn't have seven years, that was the time the last plan took to to do to get this plan into place as the government has put a two-year time limit on producing plans so this plan needs to get a sign-in from as many parts of the community as possible or the plan will be taken out of, our, of the hands of UDC and the locals and UDC will uh, not be a good outcome for them because it will be imposed by government and that's not a situation which any of us want so I do hope I can have some assurances on some of those on those points thank you thanks very much indeed I'll, I'll ask you to sum up at, uh, after the three but uh, the one um, point that I would be grateful from the chair for you to tease out is this question about um, explaining the process to parish councils Okay, uh, Councillor Jones. Thank you very much, Chairman, uh, members. Um, I wasn't sure whether I was going to actually ask to um, make this presentation tonight. It's very, very short anyway. Um, there are two or three factors uh, which are particular to the ward that I represent, which is Takey Ward, um, which I think um, are very important to get over at this um, early stage, because by actually rejecting sites now, potentially, uh, you can save a lot of work as well. Um, I'm first of all going to re refer to Site 5 on the... Um, uh, on, the, on the paper, the, the blue one. Um, those who've been in the district for any length of time will know that that is the site of the Korean Airlines crash. It's not, to my way of thinking, or many people's way of thinking, an ideal place, pretty well off the end of the runway, to put a, a large conurbation, or even a small conurbation for that matter. It's also very susceptible to noise. Uh, so, I think that's a, a no-brainer to rub out right from the start. Others may disagree, of course. Um, site 6 uh, isn't currently anywhere near uh, an area that's been designated for this kind of development. It's also very susceptible to noise. It's just over the, um, the other side of the A120 from where they do a lot of engine testing. Um, it, it's an area where you get problems with um, aircraft fumes as well as the noise uh, and it in effect will just make Tately a huge sprawl towards uh, Bishop Stortford. I know al although I, I'm less involved that Birchhanger also is very susceptible to noise at that point. Uh, Councillor Barker has already made reference to one point that um, I think shouldn't be missed that I raised up at um, the earlier incarnation of this committee some, uh, probably about 12 months ago 
which is the Junction 7A opportunity at Harlow. Uh, yes, there is Greenbelt there, but the possibility of working across the border and coming to some kind of development, it's not particularly brilliant Greenbelt, I don't think, of any uh, overriding worth. Um, but the idea of some joined up thinking and discussion with Epping Forest in that locality uh, would be quite good. The road and other transport connections are pretty strong in that area too, uh, particularly if Junction 7 does materialise because it's going to be right uh, in the southwest corner of our patch there. Um, the other thing um, in terms of the planning, we've got huge cross-border problems with education provision at the moment anyway, and particularly in the West Essex area, uh, and that's something which must be taken account of um, at a stage. It's certainly insufficient even now with the developments we get in. Uh, the new schools in Dummo and Takeley have been overtaken already by um, the growth in numbers. And the final point is the one that uh, was banged on about uh, within the presentation, and that's no disrespect to you, sir, presenting it. The word is used, consultation. I don't know if the document anywhere defines what consultation means, but it does mean plenty of discussion before such time as decisions are ever made. And over the time scale of this sort of plan, it must be an iterative process. You can't just have a consultation now, go away for five years, and then say we've made our mind up. You're going to have to go back, in my view, and um, take it through a series of discussions if you're going to get anything like any kind of agreement. Thank you, Chairman. Thank you. <coughs> Thank you very much. Uh, Mrs. Kent. Um, I start off, thank you for allowing me to speak. Um, I start off really where um, Councillor Jones finished. Recently, when chucking out 18 years' worth of paperwork, I came across this. And it's entitled The New District Plan for Uttlesford. And it's actually 19, no, yes, 16, 17, 18 years old. And I commend it to you, actually, because really what I want to talk about is cons consultation. What is proposed in here is something completely unknown in Uttlesford. Uh, we're talking about a new settlement as, you know, quite sort of trivially. In fact, you know, we're a district with two market towns and a host of small villages. And really what you're proposing is so completely different that the consultation process, I think, has to be thorough and it has to be um, so that everyone can access it. And I don't mean by email because the sort of things we're going to be looking, looking at, looking at these maps and looking at the process, I think people need to actually be able to go somewhere see them set up so that they can fully understand what is being proposed. And I don't really think you can do that from a small map on a computer, no matter how much dialogue there is to go with it. So really, it's a plea for a thorough, proper consultation before we move on. And I know this is a step ahead but um, by the time you get to talking about consultation, most of the things have already been decided. So it's just uh, getting in early. Thank you. 
Thank you very much indeed. Okay, so you had a, quite a number of points there, but uh, I, I made a point earlier about uh, how you're going to work with parish councils. That's been reiterated with sufficient consultation, um, and we've had uh, Junction 7A repeated two or three times. So, Mr. Payne, if you could respond. Thank you. Um, yes, obviously a lot of um, very, very valid points raised there by the three speakers. Um, I think in relation to the, the point that you raised, Chairman, about the process involving parish councils, yes, we're, we're very mindful of that and uh, completely uh, take on board the point that it shouldn't stop at the parish forum on the 28th of September. Um, I think what we're, we're currently thinking about how we can take forward that engagement in a meaningful way. Um, obviously, we have to be quite careful and structured about how we do that so that we can obtain the comments from parish councils um, in relation to the, the, the most pertinent points um, so that that can be fed into the process in the most helpful way and also taking account of the fact there are an awful lot of parish councillors and there are only four people in the team. So we have to be quite careful in practical terms about how we how we address that, but it's certainly something that we, we will be looking to spell out more fully um, and uh, we'll give consideration to the, the, the ideas that uh, Mrs Cheatham raised regarding the, the different groupings and how that might work. Um, I think also, I mean, just on the subject of consultation, um, I think that, yes, there is... Um, it, it, it is quite a tricky balance, I suppose, for local planning authorities when running consultations because there is, uh, there is a need to get a wide range of views and what we're looking to do really is to get as much relevant information as we can to feed into the process. Um, and it's quite common to get very large numbers of responses and again, coming back to the resources, it's something that we have to manage quite carefully. Um, but I think we, we're going to be giving very careful consideration to an engagement plan and it's something that I think we'll be bringing to the next meeting um, which will be prior to the consultation so there will be an opportunity to consider that. Um, as far as the internet goes, I think again we have to, we have to be very careful um, thinking about the resource implications and so on. Certainly I'm new to this council, I only started working here a little while ago but I know the problems that lots of authorities have had with distributing printed leaflets to every household it inevitably results in items going missing and people complaining so we have to think very very carefully about how we how we do that and we come up with an engagement plan that gets the information we need raises the uh, the options um, within people's consciousness and hopefully um, elicits some useful information as far as the plan goes um, I think there were some other interesting points that were raised um, in relation to some of the, I think both Councillor Jones and Mrs Cheatham raised some interesting points about various factors relating to various areas of search, um, relating to countryside protection zone, noise contours, uh, airline, aircraft crashes, noise, etc, uh, etc, et green belt. Um, considerations to do with Junction 7A and um, Harlow. I think what, what we, hopefully what this report is trying to do is to explain that this, these areas of search are simply a framework that we can use to explore all of those issues and many, many more as well. And so 
when, um, say, for example, another, if another authority looks to us and says, can you take some of our unmet housing need, we can say, maybe, no, and these are the reasons why, because we've been through all of these areas and this is the evidence to say why not. So it's very important that we have that process and that we don't jump to conclusions. So we will be looking, and I think at the, the next meeting in September, we're certainly hoping to present um, all the maps evidence that we've got available that people can see the sorts of things that we'll be looking at as we go through this process. So I think in terms of, um, I think it was Mrs. Kant uh, made the point about new settlements being very different to, um, to anything that this district's looked at before, and that's very true. Um, as I say, I used to work at East Hertfordshire, and, and it's similar in the sense that it has a number of market towns and villages, and the character and the quality of life offered by those, those villages is very important, and is certainly something that should be at the heart of any vision for Usselsford. Um, but I think that we, 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 are, we are certainly not saying at this stage, although there may be support in some quarters for new settlements, it's premature at this stage to say that that is the way that the council is going to be going. We have to look at what all the issues are and go through that process. Some people might argue that a new settlement could take the pressure off some of the existing towns and villages. Other people, perhaps the people whose parish the new settlement happens to be located in, may take a different view. So we have to go through that due process to understand the implications. And also, um, as we were talking about, I think uh, Mr Dodgson was referring to earlier, in terms of the timescale, and I think Councillor Lodge referred to the, uh, the, the, the straight line, if you like, of the five-year housing land supply. Does it need to be a straight line? I think we, uh, in the last session, we were talking about potential for a mixed economy, and uh, Mr. Dodgson Mr. might want to comment on this further, but my perception is certainly that the majority of plans that have been found sound have had a mix of big and small sites and a fairly continuous supply um, across the whole plan period. That's not to say... Uh, um, as, as we were discussing earlier, that it's not possible, but it's not a tried and tested route. So I think we need to be quite cautious before we jump down that route, if indeed that's a route that we want to go down. So I'm hoping that I've covered most of the issues that were raised, but uh, possibly not. <laughs> Right, I'm going to ask uh, Mr Dodgson to answer that particular question because it sort of goes back to the point that Councillor Lodge was making earlier. So um, Mr Payne's made the point that the majority of successful uh, plans have had that balance. Um, your perspective on that, and then I'll throw it open to the committee. Thank you. Yes, um, I think that is true. Uh, obviously, every area is different, and, and every local authority will have its own uh, issues and challenges. I think... There is only one example that I can think of where, um, if you want to uh, paraphrase it this way, there was an authority that chose to sort of put pretty much all of its eggs into one basket. Uh, unfortunately, uh, that particular basket turned out to be a nightingale habitat, and they were unable to uh, pursue the, the single very large site. Um, I think this... Um, I may have made that sound flippant, but the point is that... Um, if you are relying on a single large site, 
there is a very strong risk that those who are opposed to it will um, come armed with significant amounts of evidence that might try and stymie that particular choice. And if you didn't have um, a plan B, or if you hadn't done this kind of uh, sieving exercise, if you want to call it that, that, um, that Mr. Payne referred to, if you haven't got that clarity and transparency that says why certain sites have been considered and can't be considered further, uh, then you're only going to come unstuck when it comes to, uh, uh, when it comes to, to, to the crunch, if you like. But um, that's not to say you can't have a plan which only produces you know, one or two huge sites and nothing else. Uh, it just would be uh, particularly unusual. Uh. Right, members. Councillor Dean. And Councillor Lodge. Thank you. I'll, I'll start up with um, my own feelings about some of the things that the, um, the speakers have just said because I think they are very relevant and I think they're all things that we need to take on board. Um, I mean, the, the blobs on these maps, I think we discussed last time, are, you might say, quite intentionally uh, going to set hairs running uh, in that the, the process is being run differently this time. Um, uh, and of course, we're, first of all, we're holding meetings in public, which means that you can't uh, have secret hairs or whatever you want to call it. And, and this in itself, hopefully, will start a public debate that uh, may otherwise take longer to get going. So I think that, that setting hairs running is, is, is part of the process and, and is, is unavoidable, I think. And so um, um, we've just got to get on with it. Um, I, I don't think we should... Um, at this stage uh, be eliminating any blobs. Um, I mean, Derek Jones made some points which might be, you know, valid bits of information or evidence that should be put into the consideration, but I think it's uh, um, too early. We could all start coming up with reasons why we don't like particular blobs, but uh, if we did that, we'd be here all night and we wouldn't actually get anywhere. So I think at, at this stage, it's, it's too early to be removing any. And if anything, I would like to just come back to the point that I think was made earlier and doesn't seem to have been properly picked up. And this, this was the point made, first of all, by Susan Barker and referred to by Derek Jones as to whether or, whether or not there should be a blue lozenge somewhere down Sawbridgeworth Way or, or, or south. Um, you know, I mean, I can think of reasons why you wouldn't want to do like Sawbridgeworth Level Crossing, but again, it's too early to start, <laughs> start dealing with that. So I, I'd like officers to think about whether that, that area is one worth um, considering. And my, my first question on the interpretation of the report is, is on page 35. Paragraph. Sorry. Have you got the paragraph? So, uh, yes, I have. It's paragraph 3.5 on page 34, uh, which is the first blob that um, I come to going through the document, which talks about junction 9. Um, I think I'm understanding it correctly. What it's saying is that if you were to develop to the west of the M11, then there isn't a, a ready access onto the M11, not that there isn't a north-facing junction at junction 9 or a south-facing junction at <coughs> uh, a slip road, should I say, at, at junction 9. It reads as though the, the, you can't get on, on the M11 and go to Cambridge at that point. So, sorry, or go south, should I say. Um, or, or am I reading it wrongly? It says it, Junction 9 does not provide access onto the M11 southbound. 
that meaning simply if you're on the west side of the M11 you can't get to it very readily because there is a southbound. Well, uh, great. Uh, uh, have I got it wrong? It, um, you, you can go south. You can go, you can't south. go north. You can go. It says does not provide access southbound. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a half junction, but it's got to go the wrong way around. It's a limited junction at the moment. Those words may, not, may or may not be right in that paragraph, but they confuse me. <laughs> okay. We'll, we'll make sure it's crystal clear. Okay. All right. Yeah, fine. Um, I think that's, that's it for now. I have some other questions, but um, I'll. They're, they're later on in the document. <laughs> right, okay. Councillor Lodge, <laughs> getting worried. <laughs> yes, I, I, um, I've, I've got lots of virtual red ink all over this, which I'm not going to go into because I, 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 I'm sure, I don't think it's quite the, the, right, the right time to do that. So uh, I know there'll be lots of other discussions about this. But I just, I'm, uh, regret to say I'm com coming back to a question from last time, and that, that was about approaching landowners. The, um, I, I'm sorry, I'm going to be a little bit parochial here and looking at the Saffron Walden site. There are, there are several, seven lozenges around Saffron Walden, of which four certainly and possibly a lot of a fifth are in the hands of a single landowner. Um, there may, there may be reticence for that landowner to come back, but it looks as if you want to properly assess that, you've come to a time when you do have to approach that landowner. So it's the question I asked last time, can we and will we do it? Um, I'll give the answer I gave last time if I may, but then it may be that, uh, that Adam here might, might have a, uh, a view on this. I'm sure you, sure you will. Um, but sorry, I don't want to put you on the spot. <laughs> But just to so yes, we had the discussion last time. My my view is that um, I certainly um, previously when I've run this exercise in another district, um, we found that um, it helped to prompt or stimulate some uh, some suggestions because as we know now, the Corf sites is not closed now. Uh, we are open to further submissions. They can be submitted at any point. Um, and my, my uh, understanding is that, uh, well, I'm certainly not aware of any examples where, certainly in East Hearts, we didn't approach landowners to say, have you thought about submitting this? But uh, that's not to say that you couldn't, but I don't have, uh, in terms of legally, what the position is, I don't know. So there may be others here who can comment more on that. Mr. Taylor and then Mr. Dodgson. I think... Um, what I'd suggest in all these is I think what we're looking at is, is a sieving exercise and that potentially, you know, if we go to the next stage and a number fall out for different reasons, which might be things that have been mentioned, there might be other reasons, and you start getting down to some that are really serious, and though some of those haven't, no one's come forward with them, it might be, you know, that when you get further down the line, that's the time to start looking at them in more detail. What we're looking at here is... You know, testing, testing the evidence and testing you know, public perception of it and how things work. But once we've looked at the evidence, and if there are sites where the evidence says, well, there's nothing necessarily constraining these sites, but no one's come forward, that could well be the time that we actually say, well, actually, and we need to go and talk to people. But now, going back to Mr. Payne's point about um, uh, resources within the team, it's not just the seven round Saffron Walden that haven't necessarily been put forward. There's a number of sites across the district that haven't. And if we were to do all of them, we'd not be doing anything else, you know, in terms of that. So we have to be realistic. And there may very well be sites that 
are going to fall out because of those constraints. So once we get to that stage, it may very well be the opportune moment to say, well, actually, we do need to look at these in more detail, and we do need to talk to the landowner and understand their aspirations or lack of for each site. Um, but I would suggest that that might be a little bit further down the process than, than now. Well, I don't really want to add too much more to that other than to go back, I think, to a point on um, my presentation. As I say, you will get the presentation slides. But it's about the, um, whether sites are developable um, because if you're not relying on it within the first five years but you are expecting to put it in the plan at some point, then at that point there has to be this reasonable prospect that it is available and could be viably developed at the point envisaged. And you wouldn't be able to say that with any certainty if you hadn't had the conversations with developers. But to try and knock out sites before they've even been shared under this um, uh, sieving approach that we're talking about, I think it's premature to do that now. Uh, but there will certainly be and there ought to certainly be uh, a time when you do then uh, go and speak to landowners and developers to determine exactly that because there are certainly some very extreme examples, um, one in Harrogate up in Yorkshire um, where certain um, very well off people were buying paddocks at the back of their own houses to take them out of areas of search by saying I can write to Harrogate and say this will not be a housing site because I've just bought it um, and I don't know if you've got any people who can do that in Uttlesford but the point is that only when you have that conversation about whether a site um, has that reasonable prospect, as the MPPF says, it's that reasonable prospect that it is available and could be viably developed, that's when you need to have those conversations with developers because if you're putting it in your plan, you've got to have that certainty. But until that point, and you're just assessing whether certain sites are more appropriate than others, the fact that someone may or may not have an interest in bringing it forward oughtn't at this initial stage to be uh, the killer blow. Very briefly. I agree. We're not, I'm not actually not trying to knock out sites here. I'm, I'm actually trying to, trying to get sites included. And it's a very unusual case in Saffron Walden where the bulk of the land surrounding this town is owned by one, one estate. And, and, if, and, and if you're not working with them, I don't think you, you can sensibly uh, explore all of those seven areas around Saffron Walden. I just think we need to do it early. Sorry, Councillor Parry, and then I would like to sum up because we have a long evening ahead of us. I think I've just answered my own question by reading it again, so I'll let you get on. Very briefly, Councillor Dean. Yes. On um, paragraph 3.36, as reference in paragraph 3.36, as reference to the green belt, but strangely enough, only in the context of Hatfield Heath, whereas. Uh, it's relevant to Stansted Mount Fitchard. It's certainly relevant to Birchanger, which uh, is surrounded by the Green Belt. So I just want the document to be checked to make sure that it's consistent and not just singling out one area. Um, I have to say that, you know, overall this, this document makes a lot of sense. It hangs together and I think the approach is, uh, is good. So that, I didn't say that earlier, so I'll say it now. And finally, the only other thing I wanted to say was reference to paragraph 414, hybrid option 1, um, this, this was talking about, um, it, it was talking about reasons where uh, this scenario may be considered reasonable if assessment of a new settlement shows there is no realistic prospect of early delivery, but, and, and presumably that's if you wanted to follow the Garden City approach. I was just trying to understand that. No, not necessarily. That, that particular it, This is if, if, if a new settlement um, 
the point that we were making earlier that you don't really have an you know it's not realistic within the within the period that we're talking about but it is only a, a potential scenario um, and we won't know that till we get to it no I realise that. Okay. okay. Um, well, thank you very much to everybody who's taken part in that. Of, uh, uh, the consensus is that this is another very helpful step forward, that we're, we're on a journey here and we're, we're, we're gradually narrowing down from the, the early meetings that we had where we talked about the need for visions and the, the need for plans and we're starting to flesh that out. And... Um, so I, I, that, that, is the, that is the correct process. I think you've got a very clear steer. We're not talking about taking anything out at this stage far too early in the process to do that, but we are talking about potentially putting something in. So we ask you to look very seriously at, at a blue blob around the potential junction 7A. Um, we are talking about... I, I'm surprised that uh, all our email systems haven't been jammed with people seeing the map with blue blobs all over it. Um, we do need to very quickly communicate with, and I think um, this is Cheatham's idea of taking this in sort of perhaps four segments of the district. You're never going to get around 52 parish councils, but you could take it in segments just to explain what is going on uh, because uh, we, we must put this into some kind of context. We're not proposing to develop in all of the sites that are on your map. Um, it's obviously quite possible that some of them will be, but it's highly unlikely that all of them will be. But you're, sieving, you're doing a sieving exercise, and that just needs to be carefully explained. So I do urge, and I don't really want to wait until September the 28th to do that. Um, so, um, and the point about that there, there must be sufficient consultation, and um, I think in the paper you refer to three consultations. I think there are four, actually, that we need to do. Um, and uh, I think those are the main points. Is there a Chairman, it's just we do have full council tomorrow. You will have most councillors here. If you could tell the councillors the details of the parish forum so they can encourage their parishes to come along. Um, as well, as, 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 well as everything there, else. Let's I've, try to get some of them there. I will talk about the, the, the plan and the process. So uh, I hope I've adequately summarised the views and obviously we've, we've heard from um, three speakers and those points will be taken into account as well. So well done but please make sure that everybody is aware about it uh, and um, we are consulting appropriately. Moving on to agenda item six, I call upon Mrs Nicholas to talk to us about the sustainability appraisal scoping report. I'm sorry I haven't actually dealt with the recommendation, I apologise. Um, the, the, the report be supported, and I think in summary it is, and that any specific comments on the contents of the document be supplied to the planning policy team. This is presumably from this committee. Yes. So are we going to advertise much broader than that? Sorry. Um, yes, it, it, it's not, it's not um, intended to limit, limit comments to this team. It's um, the... Um, and I think just going back to your point about publicising this, I, I'm quite happy to take uh, comments from members, although, of course, not all of the members are here tonight and um, not all of them will necessarily understand this. So it may be that, um, uh, you know, we, we... Well, certainly I'm, I'm planning to um, send an email to all members and parish clerks this week 
which will hopefully explain this, as you, as you indicated, in more detail. So um, I'm, not, uh, I'm not worried about limiting it to this committee. I'm not, not well, nor, clear nor, what the, yeah, so nor should we. Uh, You've just answered the question. If you're going to send a detailed email to all parishes and all members, that's very helpful. Uh, we'll talk about it at full council tomorrow. And I would like to have a member workshop in early September. As soon as people are back from that first week in September, I'd like to have a member workshop. Okay, so uh, that's the recommendation, um, and uh, those in favour of that recommendation? Unanimous. Thanks very much. Okay, now we can move on to item six. Uh, Mrs Nicholas, thank you. Thank you. We've already heard this evening how the sustainability assessment is an essential part of the local plan process and is produced in parallel with the local plan. The aim is to improve the quality of the local plan by assessing its policies in a consistent and transparent manner and testing them against alternatives. The first stage is to produce a scoping report, which is the purpose of this report before you, and a draft for members is attached. So as well as identifying the plans and programmes from national level downwards, which are likely to influence the local plan, and the baseline information which sets out the current state of the environment, the scoping report sets out the framework for appraising different stages or parts of the local plan, whether it be broad areas of search or individual sites or development management policies. The document, the, the stage or part of the local plan being appraised is tested against sustainability objectives to assess any significant effects and identify mitigation measures which would lead to sustainability improvements. The outcome will help the Council refine its strategies and sites by the assessment of reasonable alternatives. At the conclusion of the process, there will be a clear audit trail of how the Council arrived at its strategies, policies and sites, the selection of the alternatives considered and why reasonable alternatives were rejected. So your, com your comments are sought prior to the scoping report being published for consultation in accordance with the statement of community um, involvement. Sorry to interrupt you. Could you just explain what that means, who we're consulting with at that point? It's, there are the three statutory consultees, which is Natural England, um, not Highways Agency, Environment Agency and Historic England. And I think we also consult County Council, um, so that which were set out. So it's, it's the, that's the, the, the bare minimum. Bodies. Statutory bodies, okay, thank yeah. you. Sorry, that's the conclusion of my report. Well, thank you very much. It's a, it's a hugely impressive, detailed uh, piece of work. Um, uh, so thank you for that. Um, comments from members? Members are content that... Uh, <laughs> Sorry? There was something, Chairman. I believe that when I was reading this before, and I'm on a different version now, I'm sorry, that within the assessment for the Gypsy and Traveller sites, I didn't feel that the proximity to waste and minerals workings was particularly brought out. Could you check that that's... Okay, it's there in the main one, but I think in relation to Gypsy and Traveller sites, I have seen over the years applications which are you know, potentially in, in very unsuitable sites, and um, it shouldn't really... I think that uh, minerals and... Uh, uh, waste recycling, as we were discussing the other week, you know, are not exactly very friendly things, and we don't want to be putting anybody in close proximity. Thank you. Councillor Dean. I think I'll have to do, deal with some of my questions by correspondence, because I've got scribblings all over this. And the problem with this 
screen is. You can't get from one page to another and find out where your comments were without uh, a lot of effort. And I don't want to keep, keep the meeting going till midnight. The, um, is there, um, you know, there's a lot of, um, um, not subjective, there's a lot of qualitative, quantitative, you know, qualitative information here, but I, I can't see, I haven't found anything which is quantitative in that, um, I mean, in the past when we've had, when there have been sustainability assessments, there's been a sort of set of criteria and then a, a set of weighting numbers against the various criteria and somebody's then come up with a score which says this scores 17 and this scores 19, therefore 19 is better than 17. But I, I can't see how you actually uh, use this numerically if that's the approach or, whether it, or if it isn't. And, and I, I come back to my question that I've raised at the last two meetings. Is this the mechanism that is currently being used by Essex County Council to assess the sites that were pitched in in April or whenever it was? Uh, or is this still being um, refined with a scoring system before it can be used? I'm, I'm just not quite sure where we are with... I understand a lot of principles here, but where's the practice as to how you use it or how it is used in practice? Um, there's not a scoring system on this. What they use, I think, is sort of a, a plus, a double plus, plus, minus, double minus sort of a level. So it's, it's not numerical and it's not supposed to be numerical and the sustainability appraisal that we've used has not been numerical in the past. Um, I know there was one document that the district app that officers produced, but the sustainability appraisals produced by um, place services on our behalf and the previous consultants we use have never used a scoring mechanism. And I suppose it picks up the point that Mr. Dodgson raised, is it's the balancing, isn't it? Something might score well on environment, on poor and economics, and you've got to, you know, balance, balance that up. And, like, again, as already been mentioned this evening, it's not scientific, you know, and it is all this, this balancing act, and it lets you see how a policy or a site scores well against some sustainability objectives less well on other sustainability objectives and then a, a decision has to be made. Um, in relation to the, the sites and assessing the sites, the call for sites, that will be, this will be one of the processes. I mean, the, the first thing the framework will be used for is appraising the areas of search. That will be the first document that will have a sustainability appraisal used against it and there's a, there's a specific section in the um, scoping report which explains how they'll do that and it's very high level. There's not a sort of series of questions which by the very nature of having those ellipses, um, you know, it can't be achieved, it can't be done. But um, at a later stage, you know, we have, will commission place services to sustainability praise the call for sites and they will use the framework which is in there, which has got all the, all the questions. You know, is it 100 metres from a, you know, triple SI or equivalent and things like that? You know, is it in a flood zone? There's, there's a whole, there's a table in there, I think it's table six, which sets out all the questions they were asked about every site. And then at the last meeting, we looked at the framework for the... Um, SHLA, the Strategic Housing Land Availability Assessment, which is an another thing that will be, you know, is going to be, um, each site will be, you know, each call for site will be transferred and become a SHLA site, basically. And the, the suitability aspect of that is sort of, there's an overlap with the 
um, essay work, the strategic, sorry, the sustainability assessment on that, because that's looking at, you know, what floodplains are in, you know, distance from constraints and things like that. So that work overlaps. So in relation to the call for size, they'll each be sustainability appraised and they'll each have a, have a, you know, be appraised under the strategic housing land availability assessment of which the framework was set out in the last report last so, time in 13th of July. So, so just to clarify then, the assessment that is taking place at the moment is or will be on the, the blobs and the lozenges and not on the sites that were put forward in April because that's a later stage. This is where I'm a bit muddled by what comes with, you know, courses, horses and carts. Yes, that's, that's, that's right. The, the document that is in front of you tonight uh, contains a number of different frameworks for use uh, in different stages in the process. So as Mrs. Nicholas correctly said, the first stage is to look at the areas of search and the scenarios. When that's done, we're still assembling all of the information from the call for sites and feeding that in and typing that up. But when that's, that's put into the SHLA, the Strategic Housing Land Availability Assessment, that will then be using another framework that's compatible uh, with the SHLA that's set also set out in this document. But that's a more detailed piece of work that needs to follow on afterwards, and that's going to take some time. I think if it, if it helps also to... Um, to reassure members, um, Mr. Dodgson and myself have, have discussed this and as part of the work that the Planning Advisory Service is doing for us, um, PAS have, have kindly offered to, um, to uh, get their consultants to cast an eye over this document to make sure that it is robust and that it complies with all the relevant requirements as that was one of the major points that was raised by the planning inspector. So I think members can be reassured that this will be a robust framework for consideration. I think just finally the point I'd make um, is to say that the, the, the SHLA, the all of the technical studies, the sustainability appraisal, do not in themselves generate an answer to what is the plan. What we need to do, and this is the difficult part, is to try to take all of those pieces of the evidence base and bring them together to see what they're telling us and then consider that balance in the round. And that's very, very difficult. And that's what the development strategy does. And that's something that we'll be looking at, I think, as we go through this process. But that's going to take some time. Yeah, thanks. I mean, I accept that at the end of the day, it's, a, it's all down to a matter of judgment rather than one scored 17 and one scored 15. But final question on page 135, um, paragraph 4, which is talking about um, contributions to climate change. And it seems to imply that if, if your primary, con primary objective is reductions uh, to the impact on climate change, then you should go for a, a garden settlement. Now, w why is that necessarily the case? You know, if you've got 50, um, oh, I can't remember what, passive house schemes around the district, that might be better than, um, you know, than a poor quality garden city, garden settlement. And I think that illustrates precisely the point about why you have to consider all of these factors in the round, and it's, uh, it's, this is part of the, an early stage in the process. 
clearly until we've got some more specific proposals in front of us it's going to be very hard to reach any kind of sensible judgment on that. I think conventionally um, sustainability appraisal takes this kind of rather superficial approach if you uh, excuse that description of it but it, 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 it's, um, it's of necessity it's part of that re legal requirement that we look um, at equal appraisal of all the options and that does entail a, a degree of simplification if you like and it, as you say it's very much a case of look at the individual scheme I think new settlements and garden cities have some potential for reducing uh, reducing trips by car for example so if you have a truly truly a garden city it would need to be big enough to have all of your facilities and services on site and it would be planned with transport infrastructure in mind um, then theoretically yes a garden city could be a very sustainable option but this is just one perspective on 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 that and all the other different types of development options that we have to consider in your uh, paper I think it may have been in the last uh, item five you referred to three elements of consultation and I think um, the first element if we knew by then the numbers we'd refer to the numbers required we'd certainly refer to the areas of search and we'd certainly be referring to your options in terms of dispersal settlement and a combination in between and that would be the first consultation to get a feel around that we know what the last consultation is which is the one that just that you put the whole plan before you submit it to the inspector uh, and I believe the middle consultation that you were referring to is to put the, the plan in terms of the detailed settlements for consultation and, and um, I believe there should be a fourth uh, bit of consultation. It goes back to that discussion that once uh, we've got some kind of consensus from the community in terms of uh, new settlement dispersal, um, the areas that might be in and out, and obviously you're doing evaluation against those uh, areas as well, um, that uh, as, as, as the specific areas emerge, that we should be consulting on that before we uh, put uh, a recommendation to uh, the community. So I think that then gives us four consults. I'd, I'd like you to have a look at the possibility of that, recognising the points that have been made that all of this has got to be done within the next two years. But uh, we must not fall down for lack of consultation. And I, I'm desperately keen that the community absolutely understands every step of the way. It is a complicated process. Okay, if there are no other points, uh, the recommendation there is that uh, the scoping report is public for consultation and we now know what that means in accordance with the statement of community involvement. Those in favour? Unanimous, thank you very much indeed. Uh, item 7, approach to local plan transport. Uh, Mr Pine. Uh, thank you, Chairman. This report sets out the transport assessment approach that the Council will follow in the preparation of the new local plan. The recommendations in the covering report is firstly that members are asked to support the approach and secondly that they make any comments or suggestions that they have. Now the first part of the report, that's from page 163 using the agenda numbering, is a short summary of what the NPPF and the planning practice guidance says about transport assessment. There's quite a few quotes here, Chairman, but really there are two constantly recurring themes, which are firstly reducing the need to travel, and secondly increasing the use of sustainable transport modes. But 
There is also recognition in both the NPPF and the PPG that the opportunities to do this will vary between urban and rural areas. And perhaps this is, this is indicative of the no perfect solution that Salvador Darling was referring to. The second part of the report from page 166 looks at how the assessment process is carried out, initially at a higher, more strategic level, and then more locally as options are worked up. A key part of this, this work will be to identify gaps in the existing suite of models and also to identify what further modelling work will be required to advance the plan's evidence base. I will point out at this stage the importance of paragraph 31 on page 169 about opportunities to use sustainable transport. Highways England have said at various duty to cooperate meetings that one of its considerations will be the extent to which local plans are effective in achieving this. So clearly they see a synergy between reducing the need to travel, using sustainable transport and reducing the strain on the road network, both local and strategic levels. The third part of the report from page 170 looks at some of the general transport issues that the local plan inspector dealt with in his report. The main points to make are the four conclusions set out on page 174 and you can say I guess that these are lessons that need to be learned and acted upon when advancing the new local plan through its, its process. And the last part of the report on page 174 sets out a very initial transport assessment programme based on the indicative work plan that was presented at your last meeting. And it also sets out the eight main areas where the assistance of an independent transport consultant would be valuable. Thank you, Chairman. Thank you very much indeed. Any comments? Councillor Lodge, Councillor Dean. Um, Microphone. Sorry. Um, on page 169, uh, paragraph 28 there, you're talking about um, asking promoters to sub submit a transport assessment. Um, my um, recent assessment of these is they've been pretty poor and obviously biased towards the outcome that they want. Um, can, can we be sure that we'll have a rigorous assessment of those? Chairman, that would be one of the reasons why we would appoint an independent transport consultant. Certainly it's vital that we get, we, we get, we get advice that is impartial and evidence-based. Uh, I think an independent uh, advisor is absolutely crucial. Um, I'm, you know, we've been scorched twice now uh, on appeals that have been turned down for transport reasons and that, you know, fed up with that happening. So uh, I think we absolutely need to do that. Thank you. Paragraph um, 22 on page 167 talks about this tool, the modelling tool, VISUM. Um, if I'm reading this correctly, it's saying that currently it won't work for the north of the district, in, in particular um, Junction 9 on the M11, um, in which case how do we go about assessing the relative merits of development in the south compared with the north of the district? That's correct, Chairman. The, what the Vision model does is it models traffic on the network of roads throughout the district, but it only models it in terms of its actual impact within the, the red area. So if we are looking in more detail at 
solutions that are outside the VISM, the red area, to the east and to the north, we will have to assess whether further modelling needs to be constructed. It might be some modelling exists, maybe, say, Cambridgeshire are using, that we can use, or it might be that some fresh modelling work has to be done, and clearly that's, again, where a transport consultant will help us. But, you know, uh, the suite of models is what it is, and it, it, its coverage is never universal. For instance, vision modelling covers an area. A couple of the other models I've quoted cover just specific junctions. So w what we have to do you know, is make sure that as we move on, the modelling tools that we have are adequate to the job, and it may well be that what we currently have isn't. I think that answers your question, but Mr Taylor just wants to comment, and then you can come back if you want to. But I think the point you're making is we must have a sort of consistent appraisal through the area. I was just going to say where the background of the vision model came from, really, which might help to explain why it is where it is, which is that it was drawn together looking at Junction 7 and 7A, and then it was extended to Junction 8. So that's why it's focused on that area, because it was developed in relation to looking at Junction 7 and trying to find a solution for it. So it was extended, so it focuses on that part of the district that feeds mostly into that area, which is the history in relation to the, the, model, the model. Obviously, there are, um, going back to Councillor Lodge's point, the call for site set out a range of data upon which highway assessment we ask people to, to base their highway assessment on. So they've all got a, a baseline that's the same. Um, so by utilising the assessments that people have made, the various models that Mr Pines explained, the idea is that we can get some independent external advice that can advise us, are there gaps, do we need to commission further work, um, do we need further work on Junction 9 or any of the junctions further east along the A120, but we, this, is, this is the state of play at the moment, but that's where the background of where the models have come from. I mean, coming back, what we, what we don't want to do is to charge away for the next uh, 12 months and have a load of things we want to assess and then everything's held up for six months either because the highways agent or whatever they call themselves now uh, highways england uh i didn't know they'd changed their name uh you know aren't, aren't ready to we, we can't assess them um, you know we've, we've published a, a map like this so we've got to be able to evaluate all of it i agree that some of it might have to be done in greater detail if if you know, if some of the lozenges drop out at an early stage for good reason, but as part of part of reasons for deciding to pursue or not to pursue is highways. We, you know, you can't uh, eliminate things on a limited number of criteria, but on all of them, I would have thought. Um, and, and and the only other thing I wanted to say on uh, you know, highways very much relates to infrastructure. Um, and, and I know that the, we, we've been talking just now about the more strategic network, but the, the, the same goes for the local network. And what I, I don't want to see is a repeat of, and I think Councillor Lodgers alluded to this, I don't want to see a situation where we get proposals, as we did have for Elston, where you know, we were saying, oh, and the local highways matters will come right on the day, you know, five or ten years hence, somehow or other a solution will emerge from somewhere and, and we've got to have reports either from our cons consultants or from Essex Highways which actually are ahead of the game and not, not sort of based on wishful thinking. I, I really want to stress that one. 
Okay, there's no need to reply. I think you just, uh, I mean, you can. I'll ask uh, Councillor Parker in just a moment. But uh, Councillor Dean's absolutely right because uh, the last plan was held up for a long time because of, uh, first of all, the Highways Agency and then Essex uh, Highways able to respond to the Highways Agency. Uh, and that causes a lot of anxiety and missing a number of slots. So, uh, point well made, and um, I'm sure we'll work our way around that. Councillor Barker. Thank you, Chairman. We mentioned a number of roads, but we have mentioned the, the possibility of a Sawbridgeworth, Hatfield Heath lozenge, and we're not mentioning the A1060. Now, it is in this study area with Junction 7A. It's going to change traffic flows coming out of Chelmsford. People will see that as an easy access to the, um, to the M11 North. It's not the most brilliant road at this moment in time, but I don't think we should leave it out of our equations as to, you know, if we're actually aware that what the impacts of development along that road could have. I don't think Chelmsford particularly is looking to come north in that direction, but that doesn't mean Sawbridgeworth might not you know, be looking to go east. So I think we need to make sure the A1060, which is within that area, is, is examined. Okay, well, thanks very much, uh, uh, members. Um, the recommendation is laid out at point two. The members support the approach set out in the report and that any member comments or, or suggestions on the approach be discussed, which I think we've had a good discussion around that. So those in favour? Thank you. Unanimous. Item eight, Mr Payne, Neighbourhood Development Plans and the Local Plan. Thank you once again, Chairman. This final report this evening sets out national guidance on the relationship between local plans and neighbourhood development plans and provides further context in terms of how this is likely to affect plan making in Uttlesford. It includes extracts from the planning practice guidance at Appendix A and also includes a section on further information and resources, including in relation to grants and funding. Traditionally, local plans allocate development in villages. This can help to ensure development is spread around the district and ensure that new development helps to support essential rural services such as shops, pubs and village schools. An alternative approach is through the preparation of neighbourhood development plans. National policy is clear that neighbourhood development plans must be consistent with local plans. This consideration applies not only to small sites but also to the edges of towns which may need to grow across administrative boundaries into a neighbouring parish area. It also applies to any potential new settlements which may be located within one or more parishes. Such developments could be critical to delivery of the development strategy for the local plan. The Council supports the production of neighbourhood plans and to date a small number of town and parish councils have indicated their intention to do so. In order to facilitate the alignment of any potential neighbourhood development plans with the emerging local plan, parish, uh, parish councils which have not already done so are encouraged to submit any proposed neighbourhood development plan areas to the District Council by the end of this year. In order to assist parish councils in making the difficult decision as to whether or not they can commit the time and resources to preparing a neighbourhood development plan, it's proposed to send this document to them and then to provide further support through the parish forum on the 28th, 28th of September, followed by one-to-one -one meetings later in the autumn or, as we've discussed this evening, through some other mechanism. Uh, one important consideration arising from the recent ministerial statement is that given the urgency of getting a plan in place, plan makers should focus on the core issues which are critical to soundness. The, sound set the settlement hierarchy is one area which generates a level of debate which is often disproportionate to its importance in terms of the soundness of the local plan. The local plan inspector considered that the settlement hierarchy, consisting of towns, key villages and type A and B villages, is soundly set out.
In order to enable the Council to focus on core matters of soundness, it is proposed that the existing settlement hierarchy should be carried forward, but that the District Council should work with parish councils to identify the key local issues which could affect development prior to producing a draft local plan. Chairman, that concludes the introduction to this report. Thank you very much, and that uh, chimes really well with a lot of the things we've been saying this evening. Um, comments? Well, I'll kick off because uh, you try to answer the question, what happens if you don't have a local plan? What is the, the um, position of the neighbourhood plan? And I read it and I still didn't quite understand the position at the end of it because this is the chicken and the egg, isn't it? But uh, the, the, the local neighbourhood plan must fit in with a local plan. Um, but as I say, what happens if there isn't a local plan in place? Because a number of communities at the moment are developing their local plans um, and obviously against what background? Um, I think that um, I think the report refers to the, the risk of there being a patchwork of plans and clearly that's not an ideal situation and I think certainly the intention of the local plan for the whole district should be to set out with preparing a plan for the whole district so that there aren't, there aren't gaps in provision um, and that's clearly a formidable undertaking given the number of villages and the different issues in each of those villages. Um, I think that we've heard about the MPPF tonight and the guidance that that provides to planning applications in instances where there is no up-to-date local plan. I think that whilst we are encouraging the um, parish councils to prepare neighbourhood plans, um, we can't compel them to do so. That's entirely their decision, quite properly. Um, but in the interim, I think it's correct to say, as Mr Dodgson referred to earlier, that it's not a planning free-for-all. Um, and so in the interim, we need to work together. And if planning applications come in before that framework, whether it's through the Parish Council's own neighbourhood development plans or whether it's through the local plan before, if applications come in before that framework is in place, then uh, applications would need to be considered on their merits with reference to the National Planning Policy Framework. At the moment, we still have a healthy five-year housing land supply. And we'll need to keep that, that situation under very careful consideration. But, it, but I'm not sure whether, Adam, whether, whether you have any further ideas about neighbourhood planning or coverage. Or <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a complicated issue and you've got, you've got a lot, obviously you've got a lot of um, neighbourhood plans and across the country and they've been taken up with varying degrees of enthusiasm um, across the country but it's trying to stitch it all together, that's the challenge. Well, let me give you a specific example and perhaps to, to, to both of you. Um, if um, Site A um, puts together a neighbourhood plan that um, goes through a referendum and I guess a key point of that is whether it's adopted by Adelsford District Council so that's a key piece of the jigsaw but let's say it's, it's gone through the referendum and um, it's proposing uh, 250 homes in its community and the local plan is further developed and decides that the new settlement will go at, at this place so there's a, there's, there's a neighbourhood plan in place uh, they've offered uh, housing and the local plan now says actually we're going to make it the new settlement of 4,000 houses what, what, what's the position there? Oh, that's a really complicated question but I think the answer is um, set out in the 
guidance. Um, it's, it's, uh, the, the PPG says that the, it's the latest plan that is adopted that would be, become the, 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 uh, the plan for the area. Now, it essentially becomes a, a decision for members, I suppose. It's a political decision uh, that requires that judgment to be exercised about how to take forward the plan. Um, clearly, if, if one parish has absolutely set itself against a new settlement, but the alternative to that is to put lots of development in a town or village somewhere else, clearly that affects those other parishes. So it's a, it's a classic example of one of those strategic issues that the council needs to consider across the whole area and why it's quite difficult for, um, for, for us to look at one piece of the jigsaw in isolation. Um, but I'm sure there are others here who have views on that. Um, a, another answer to your question is that they could end up with both. Um, if they have a neighbourhood plan that they are taking through that process and it's been adopted or getting to that stage on site A for 250 houses and over there on site B the district council has a different process level proposes, allocates 4,000 houses they both are there. If they're on the same site one trumps the other but if they're on different sites within the, the same area then you do get a situation where there are two lots of development, effectively. Um, I mean, if, taking aside, you know, neighbour plans in a, in a vacuum, I mean, we have been operating that in terms of neighbour plans over the last few years, and that doesn't stop neighbour plans coming forward. They've just got to be aware of the existing framework within the current local plan and the emerging framework within it. So they, they can certainly develop over time at the same time as the local plans coming out. It just, um, so what we've done, as you all know, is appoint somebody who can advise them, which makes sure that we as officers are linked in very closely with what's going on so that, as best as possible, plans can dovetail. But there may very well be a crunch position where the district council has a different view to people developing a neighbourhood plan. Yeah. Uh, Sorry to prolong this point, and uh, I'll be interested in Mr. Dodgson's response, and then I'll ask uh, Councillor Dean. But it is always, uh, and I think as a council, we're, we're very supportive of neighbourhood plans. We want them developed. We want that community involvement. Um, but I don't want to lead uh, local communities along a line that they think that they have got uh, an authority that they don't. Uh, have and obviously the model works best where there is a, a, an outlined local plan um, and the community uh, works that up locally and I think uh, that's very healthy. Um, but I don't know if you want to make a final comment Mr Dodgson and then I'll ask Mr Dean. Yeah thanks Chair. I need to say really I think Mr Taylor um, sort of nailed it when he was talking about the engagement and it's absolutely crucial that the, uh, any neighbourhood uh, or any parish that's looking forward to bring forward a neighbourhood plan is aware of the uh, current situation the local authority is in and where they are going to be looking and how they are going to be preparing their local plan. They of course now, I, th I think it was the case that, that uh, they couldn't produce plans in advance of a local plan uh, previously but they now can so they are, it is still open to them but I think it would just be that case of really um, bottoming out that engagement and making it very very clear to them that they are potentially at risk of, of being able to a, uh, you know, successfully hold a referendum, have the plan made and then maybe 18 months down the line something different comes along which would, uh, in language used uh, earlier, trumpet 
uh, trump it, not trumpet. Um, uh, and so it's all about the engagement and it's all about being clear that the local, local authority is working on a local plan. And in an ideal world, I think Paz likes to say that if you get the engagement right with the local community about its area within the larger local plan, they may not feel the need to pr produce their own uh, neighbourhood plan um, if it was all about site selection. But if it's about other things, they're of course still able to. Councillor Dean. I can't imagine many parish councils who are not yet at the starting block um, having a neighbourhood plan uh, ready before this local plan is finished, or I hope not. It's more to the point that I hope the um, neighbourhood plan, that the local plan doesn't go on uh, for too long, uh, as in the past. But I mean, my, my perception of the view of parish councils or one particular parish council up to now you know has been that well we don't really we're going to think about this for a long time because we're not quite sure what the framework is that the district council has been pursuing and we're not sure whether we want to be ahead of the game or behind it and therefore you know nothing happened but now maybe now that there's a more um, understandable structure coming forward, albeit that many of them haven't, won't have got their heads around it yet, uh, but are going to be assisted in doing so. And once they see that they're either next door to or underneath the blob, they might think, oh, maybe uh, it's about time we started to think for ourselves, in which case, uh, I mean, the question I raise is, uh, is Uttlesford going to be other examples of district councils being inundated uh, with neighbourhood plans, and if so, how are we going to resource it? Because I think, you know, have we got a plan B? No doubt it's not written up, but has anybody at least given some early thought to plan B if there are 30 of them, or no, even 20 of them on the go in, in the next 18 to months to two years? Are we resourced to a flood? That's probably one for me. Um, uh, no, we're not resourced at the moment for a flood. Um, if we have a flood, then we will obviously need to consider that carefully. We have the resource we have, which is uh, one outside person per day. Sorry, one day per week from an outside person um, who is, is very capable about going out in terms of ad advising people. It's obviously not doing the work, advising people. Um, and... Uh, she has made great inroads in, in meeting a number of different uh, parish councils um, but obviously can only deal with a certain amount of work. If there were lots we would need to look at the resource that we would directed towards it. Councillor Mills, did you want to? Um, yes, just quickly. Could we clarify how many neighbourhood plans have been adopted or to this date or how many have been submitted? And the second point to this is I seem to remember something called a VDS, village design statements, that sort of disappeared down an imaginary hole that a lot of uh, parish councils put a lot of work into once before. And uh, so my question is, how effective are these going to be actually adopted into the system, or are they likely to sort of disappear like it did in the past? Um, I think in relation to village design statements and parish plans, yes, um, many parish councils have put a lot of work into those and they're often very helpful documents and provide a lot of useful context for, um, for, for us to look at, certainly. Um, but what they don't have is that statutory weight that a neighbourhood development plan would have. Um, as you'll be aware, the neighbourhood development plans were introduced relatively recently under the coalition government so, um, so that's just a simple statement of the fact, the difference in the statutory weighting that can be um, 
be uh, attributed to to them. Um, and sorry, I can't remember what the other point was. How many have we approved? That's right. Um, there's a list in the report, actually. I think it's about half a dozen or so, isn't it? Andrew? I mean, we, we haven't approved any plans within Uttlesford. We've, put, we've approved a number of areas in Saffron in uh, Great Dunmo, in Felsted, um, and Grace and Little Chesterford. And there's one that's about to come up for Stansted. Um, we haven't... Uh, the furthest uh, ahead is the Great Dunmo, I've um, been out to public consultation once on its neighbourhood development plan, but we haven't had any made not that, or adopted. Is it? But um, there are numerous examples around the country where that's happened, but not here. Um, all the adopted parish plans and village design statements are on our website, and they are used by the development management team in assessing planning applications in those areas. But as Mr Payne said, they have a different weight to neighbourhood development plans. Okay, I can't see any more hands. So the recommendation is that the report be supported as a basis for approaching parish councils regarding their intentions in respect of the preparation of neighbourhood development plans aligned with the emerging local plan. Uh, all those in favour? Unanimous. Thank you very much indeed. Item 9, date of next meeting is um, the 14th of September. Edward, I'm sorry, it's a Monday. Uh, we bust a gut to try and avoid a Monday, but for... Be reasons beyond our control, that was the only date that we could go for. That's the date that may change dependent on the Shmar, because if we are likely to get a figure around that time, we, it'd be worth debating. Okay, so keep the date in your diary, uh, but if, it's, uh, if the Schmar um, outcome is close, then it would be worth having that outcome for the meeting, but I wouldn't want to leave it much, very long. Okay. Chairman, uh, I, I really am sorry. I will have to give my apologies. I have two parish council meetings that night. Maybe the Schmar will delay it. Okay. Right. Really, I'm sorry. No, we, 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 we won't do another Monday, I promise you. Um, and officers have heard that, so don't propose it. Okay, right, thanks very much indeed. End of meeting, thanks.